Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. To business tonight, we start talking about what I call theological bubble. It's not my uh, expression, but you understand the meaning of that. And as I say before, the Jewish people certainly got egg on their face in the 17th century and afterwards. And the question is why? And that's something we're going to start to be talking about uh, tonight. So let's consider, begin at the beginning by considering what exactly is Judaism. Uh, and it's hard to answer that question. It's a monotheistic religion, but that ain't all it is. Right? I mean, you know, no, they believe in one God. That's not the sum total of Judaism. Otherwise, we just say, okay, we don't have to do anything. You just believe in one God. That's what they call deists. Okay? In addition, Judaism is, as I always like to call it, a nomian, as opposed to an antinomian religion. It's a religion of, of laws. My God, do we have laws. Uh, and, and customs and regulations and rules, uh, more than anybody else, except maybe the Hindus and 30 or 40 other religions in Asia. But in the West, we got more than anybody else. And... Um, that's certainly true, although that's not all that Judaism is either. One thing we're not is a religion with a very precise theology. Jesus has never been even attempting, as far as I know, to be theological, to get official and exact definitions of what is God, what is heaven and earth, what happens to you when you die, what really happens when you die, what is uh, the soul, what is the Yitzhatobi Yitzhahara, uh, the things you read in the Bible, which parts are true, meaning literally so, which parts are not literally so. You think, well, everybody knows God doesn't have a hand. There were people who held a God as a hand. The Rambam condemns them. You understand? It's not, it's not true what you say. Who's got it right today? The Hasidim or the Misnagdim? The Ashkenazim or the Sephardim? The Lababach or everybody else? Which, you know, who's got it right? And, you, you know, and of course, everybody says, my way. Man. But, you know, there's no one agreed upon definition of core theological issues in Judaism, and this is nowhere more evident than in the Talmud. Anybody with the slightest familiarity with the Agadita, and half of the Gemara is halach and half of the Gemara isn't, and the part of the Gemara, the entire Talmud. I'm talking about the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Mechilta, the Sifra, the Sifra, the Bible, the Yushami, the Medishami, all that stuff. You always find on every page, well, you know, what happens after a die? Reb so-and-so says this happens, someone says the exact opposite. What does God eat for breakfast? One says this, one says that. The other one says he doesn't eat breakfast. The other one says, oh, yes, he does. You see? That's very typical of the rabbinic literature. And obviously, whoever edited it and put it down on paper that we study today was conveying to us a multiplicity of theological perspectives, which means that there's no one. Actually, it has been a strength of Judaism, I think. And more importantly, it was a historic necessity because... Long ago, Jews lost their state, their temple, their priesthood, their independence, their geographical contiguity, they're scattered all over the world, without any ability to communicate with each other for many centuries, in radically different cultural contexts. Some live in the Arab world, some live in the Christian world, some live in the world of uh, hocus pocus of voodoo and some the opposite. And some spoke Yiddish and some did not. They spoke a completely different dialect. And so what held them together? 
Yes, they went home together. And the answer is they obviously had to have certain commonalities, but also you had to have a certain amount of flexibility. If everybody insists on the Hasidic way, you're not going to hold everybody in. If everybody exists on the Rambam way, you're not going to hold everybody in. If everybody exists on the non-Rambam way, you're not going to hold everybody in. And so on and so forth. If everybody says you have to do like Sam Sreve Hirsch or the Maral, or of Dessler, or whatever, it ain't going to work for everybody. Um, and so anyway, the Judaism had never been... We're, we, we fight a lot about rules. We fight a lot less about theology. That's a... You, you just better know that. Um, now, there are several basic trends of Jewish thought which have developed down the millennia. I think that's true. Meaning, with anybody writing down, these are the beliefs or the theological principles of Judaism. This is very different, by the way, than the Christians. Right? Christianity, coming from a Hellenistic perspective, downplayed the importance of, of laws, but they upplayed the importance of theological principles. And so, in Christianity, there are huge battles and wars when a lot of people were killed, whether Jesus has a knuckle or just seems to, whether he had a mother or didn't really have a mother, whether he had hair or didn't. I'm, I'm serious. You know, was he a man and a god? Was he a man slash god? All these kind of things, which in Judaism made no sense. So there put the, and if you didn't follow the correct theology and adhere, for example, to the Nicene Creed or some other creed, oh, you were in big trouble. You got killed. And Judaism never exactly developed that until very recently. So anyway, the, the, um, but there are several basic trends of uh, Jewish thought which have developed down the millennium. One of them, obviously, is the chosen people. I think that's obvious. Correct? You have in the Torah the idea that God created the world and gave the Torah to the Jews and all the rest of it. Oops, watch it. Give the Torah to the Jews. Then give it to someone else. It's called the chosen people. <laughs> so right off the bat, it's a core element, popular or not, of the Jewish religion belief. Problem is, if we're a chosen people, why are we in such a miserable exile? <laughs> if we're chosen people, we should be living... Let your fantasy run away with you, you know. But right, I should have not a small place in Rechavi, a big place in Rechavi with an elevator and, you know, four bathrooms and three cars, you know. Why, 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 why aren't we all uh, uh, living in the high in the hog? Why do Jewish people, especially years ago, don't have a country, downtrodden, and all the rest of it? And of all this emerges, not clearly, but very distinctly, uh, the Messiah idea, the Mashiach. Now, the word is not used in the Tanakh exactly, and nowhere is this laid out with precision, but different Nevi'im talk about aspects of some future better world. Now it stinks. Why is it sick now? That's already a question that you can answer. We've sinned, we blew it, we lost everything once we had a kingdom, but we're going to get it back. Right? We say this all the time, you don't even realize it. You understand? And to be perfectly honest, it's uh, a little bit interesting that this week happens coincidentally to be the Parsha of the great messianic predictions in the Chumash. There's only one Parsha I know of, and that's Bullock. Where Bilaam, we talked about this morning in this place, Bilaam, as we all know, was not able to curse the Jews. But at the end, he says to Balak, let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. Isn't that right? I'll tell you, Ba'achris Hayyamim. And what does he say? I see it. It's, it's not happening close, but I see it down the line. Darach Kochav Miyakov, become Shevet Israel, 
a star will burst forth from Jacob and a staff from Israel. Now, bust Moab, because he was talking to the king of Moab, who was criticizing him because he didn't curse the Jews. And he said, I'm not going to give you any money. So he said, oh, really? Oh, good. I'll tell you what's happened to Moab. It's going to be destroyed. The Karkar Kobanei Shase. And that this figure, the star coming out of Jacob, will dominate the human race because it will Karkar Kobanei Shase. He will rule and dominate the descendants of Shase. That's us. That's the human race. Right? Need I remind you? Cain and Abel, that didn't work out. Abel got killed on day one. Cain got basically wiped out, we believe, with the flood. 99.9%. And the rest of the human race come from Chase. So if this, whoever he is, this Koch of Yaakov, is coming forth, and going to dominate B'nai Chase, that's like a certain statement that some thing or somebody will someday in the future. And by the way, this wasn't even a Jew talking. This was a Bilaam talking King of Moab. But we read it all the time in Parsha. True? So now that I told you, I'll pay attention to the laning this week in Shul. And he goes on to say, that this person or whatever will dominate Edom, which to people in time of the Talmud was Rome. Right? And even talks about Tzim Meyad Kitim, that invasion fleets will come from other places. Isn't that right? And so he portrays some charismatic figure far in the future who will be a violent individual. <laughs> right? doesn't say he'll come as a prince of peace and spread peace and love, and, you know, when the moon is in the seventh house. It won't do any of that. He'll come and, and bring down destruction uh, on them, not on us. Um, and again, it's not clear. Again, it's very unclear. Which is why Rashi says it means this, Ramban says it means this, and Glitz says something else. So this is a basic feature of this idea. It is a messianic idea, but it's not clear. Um, when you get to the prophets, the Nevi'im, Zechariah, Yeshaya, Yechesko, so a couple other places, particularly in the book of Daniel, Daniel, you get a lot of different and competing images. Competing images of what this messianic process or figure is going to be like. Just a few different images emerge. The regal and just king. Right? Oh, he'll be prince of peace. Uh, he'll, he'll be able to judge just by, by smelling. He'll cause uh, the end of war. Then you have the suffering servant. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, in the which... Many of the Mepharshim, even though they wouldn't say it in Christian debates, is a, is a messianic sort of thing. A suffering servant that will undergo vicarious suffering on behalf of the Jews. You have a mighty warrior. Right? I just told you. Karkar, Kobane Chase. You have a superhuman. Ah, we're getting on sticky ground over here. But there are indications Person will be not just a, a, a human, but, but a superhuman. So which is it? Problem is, when you get in the VM, it's never exact. If you don't know what I'm talking about, chances are you don't listen at the end of services on Shabbos morning when they do something called Anav Zemiris, which was composed by one of the Hasidic Ashkenaz back in the 1200s, 13th century. And what does he say? 
I'm thinking about you, I'm yearning for you. I imagine what you're like, I can, I, but I never know what you're like. And he goes on to say that you've been described, God, in many different ways, and none of them are exactly right. This is what you're reciting when you do Adam's and Mira's. Isn't that right? He says, uh, how's it go? Um, how's it, you know? Sometimes you're described as a man of war, like in the Oz Yashir. Sometimes you've got to describe as, as an old man of the day of, of judgment, like the book of Daniel, when God is described as a, as a man in a long, old man in a long white atikim, in, in a long white robe, with a white beard. He's Zikna Biyomdin. In other words, we can't get any exactness out of all this. We get glimpses, pieces. Hence the problem with messianism. Um, and to add to this, there have always been and always will be in Jewish uh, circles because we are a large group, the elite conceptions and the mass conceptions. Right? The scholars, and the biggies, the ones that, who, example, know the different passages in Talmud, but they can put them together in such a way. And then the average man and woman on the street or sitting in the synagogue hearing the Haftorah or the Parsha of the Week with the aid of a Targum and hearing all kind of wild things. If you happen to hear the Targum of a guy named Unculus, okay, he's very careful to tamp all this down. If you hear another one of these targums, the Mashiach Kakam is going to fly in a, in, in, in a, in a spaceship, going to blow up the Goyim, going to take over the world, and people will, will be resurrected on the spot, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. So there are the elite conceptions and the mass conceptions. You can never get rid of this because it is a fact, I would assert, that uh, you always have a problem, the masses are asses. I don't go to them. After all, how many people a few years ago believed in the talking fish in Muncie? Huh? Yeah, now, you don't follow. Now, um, or, 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 the lady, or the lady back in Israel, it wasn't that long ago, she got a dip and said, vote for a Vadiyosef party in the elections. Right? We forget these things because they go for somebody. What I'm trying to say is people get traction no matter how crazy it is. Now, this explains why we've had a problem almost from day one with false messiahs. If you want to be historical about it, Josephus, and I mentioned this in the history series um, when we did it a couple of months ago, uh, in the time of Josephus, he records, and remember, he lived in the time of Corbin by Shani, an entire wave, I remember it's like a dozen or more, of people in Judea in the, what the Gemara refers to as the 40 years before the Corbin, when things were real bad under the Romans, and the Jews in Judea couldn't stand it, and what was necessary was a great deal of patience in turning the other cheek, which is what the rabbis recommended. But the young people, for perfectly understandable reasons, didn't want to hear from this, and they couldn't stand the presence of the Romans. And the fascist collaborationist regime of the Herodians and the corrupt high priests that's what was going on in Israel at that time. 
And constantly, but what do you do? How do you get rid of the Romans? Everybody knew that they were all powerful, which they were in those days. The Roman army was by far the best. And how's a puny little group like the Jews in a small corner of the Middle East going to be able to take them more? And so you have the paradox of the, what do you call it, the irresistible force versus the immovable object. And the result is that people step forward during this period. I'm talking about the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s CE. After the year 1 or 10 or so. 20, let's say. And a person would pop up here and there and he would say the following. Enechanami, you can't defeat the Roman Empire. Alderechateva. You can't defeat the Romans by regular power. But you can defeat them Right? Through miracles, the hand of God is not too weak to do anything. After all, doesn't Judah Maccabee, for example, constantly tell the troops in the book of Maccabees, don't be hemmed in by the fact we're at number 20 to 1 or 100 to 1 because victory belongs to God? So are you of little faith that you don't believe in me? When God told me last night or yesterday at breakfast that I am the hero sent from above, and by the way, a lot of these people just get over this. When I say false messiahs, I mean they're false in that they're not the Mashiach. doesn't necessarily mean that they were phonies and charlatans. A lot of these people ended up believing their own stuff. It's not only the French who had Joan of Arcs. We have plenty of Joan of Arcs. They believe their own stuff for whatever reason. And so they get, get carried away. And each one of these false Mashiachs got traction. Josephus, I remember, records a guy who said, that I had a vision, we're all going to jump off the walls of Jerusalem and fly to Rome like Peter Pan and bomb them. And a bunch of people jumped off the walls of Jerusalem and they died. And another guy, which remains vivid in my memory, said, follow, follow me into the, into the Mediterranean Sea. If you've you got to be like Nachshon ben Aminadov. Because I'll say the water was up to here, and then because he had a moon, it split. So all they went deep in the water and they drowned. You see? And other similar kinds of factors, because you always do this thing, oh, you're not from, you don't believe. It was wrong with you. It's, it's, it's probably your moon. And so consequently, you had a whole string of these. The Christian religion, if there's anything to it, if there was a person, I say if, there was a person named Jesus of Nazareth, would fit very well in this period before the temple was destroyed of the false messiahs. I'm not saying he did exist or didn't exist, because Josephus doesn't mention him, <laughs> which is interesting. But nevertheless, it was such a period. Now, they were all phonies. And not only that, but... They kept people's hopes up and they helped stir the popular feeling to the point, perfectly understandably, that they rose and revolted against Rome. But of course, what was the end? One total Mapala. Basemigia was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jewish state was destroyed. We haven't been, we've never recovered till today. And so the, all of a sudden, the idea of a, a Shiach figure, a false messiah, it turns out to be not something piquant to study or to talk about, becomes something demonic, as they call it, meaning something that has the potential cause a big Corbin and call Yisrael. And they have. Right? They have. Now, um, each one of these guys got killed one way or the other in the time of Josephus, but sects formed around them and around others. The style of rabbinical literature, I'm talking about Chazal, is to kill by silence. We do not know, we never will know, how many false Mashiach popped up after destruction based in Mignish when the Josephus types were gone and the only people left were the rabbis. And they were the ones doing the writing. And therefore, if this guy or that guy or this lady or that lady claimed to be a messianic figure, they like, don't even talk about it. The best thing you can do is let it be 
disappear from history. You get it? That, that, that's their approach. But you can tell a little bit. I remember there's a Mishnah or Pesach like that who says, I don't want to daven for the Ahmed unless I'm wearing white or gold or things like this. These are sectarian groups. These usually have some kind of messianic basis. And they were promising, of course, to rebuild the base. I mean, just kicked the Romans down in some miraculous way and all the rest of it. The only one we know that got traction among the rabbis was Bar Kokhba, which, of course, turned out to be a complete disaster. Right? And only because Rabbi Kiva backed him. Uh, we did this last summer. Rabbi Kiva backed him. Others did not back him. But it is what it is. You know, it was a big, it was a big uh, business. But, he, but look how hundreds of thousands of Jews rallied to the flag and fought the Romans under his leadership which means that the messianic idea, very powerful, it's a button you press with the Jewish people and you get something when you press that button. Hence, it's very dangerous. Right? Don't press unless you know what you're doing, which you don't. And so, um, various sects form after the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, they've come and gone. Most of them are, are not around anymore. Uh, these are things that don't come into rabbinic literature, except in a very tangential way. What I mean by that is, most of you have, well, have no idea what I'm talking about. We think of Mishnah and the Gemara, you know, the regular rabbinic literature. There's a parallel literature that goes along also, which is semi-Kabbalistic and um, uh, semi-nuts, uh, more than semi-nuts. And uh, these are Midrashim that didn't exactly get into the Medrash, but they're floating Midrashim out there in a sort of, uh, what should I say, uh, peripheral Matter if you ever get Eisenstein's oats and Midrashim, you can see some of these things. They're not exactly Midrashim, you know, them on the other hand, they're old and they're, they're out there. There's a whole parallel literature. I'll just give you an example of one of them, although it's not exactly this. Toldus Yeshu, maybe you've heard of that book, right? Which purports falsely to be the story of Jesus, which it isn't, but it's been believed by Jews for a long time. And it's from the 300s or something, I mean, you know, from the time of the Amorite. We can trace it back, possibly even older. And so, and by the way, he's flying through the air and doing all kind of magic tricks and things like that. Uh, these kinds of phenomena will always catch some groups of Jews. And they'll be, uh, you know, sort of like uh, caught in the uh, snares. There was tremendous confusion, and there still is, about Daniel's prediction of the four kingdoms. It's very clear, and the Jews and the Chazal also pinned a lot of hope on the famous foretelling of the future that you find in the book of Daniel. Right? When Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue with a head of gold, and then comes silver, and then comes the bronze and iron, and he's told over there that these are four kingdoms that will come, and then will come a little stone and destroy it. That's the Mashiach. That's the Jewish people. At least that seems to be the usual understanding of it. And so in the time of the Gemara, they were absolutely convinced that the first kingdom is Bavel. In fact, it says in the book of Daniel, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Antu Reisha Dehava, you're the, you're, the, you're the head of gold. It was pretty clear to them that afterwards comes Persia, because in history, the Persians took over after the Babylonian Empire. It was fairly clear in the time of the Gemara that the third one was uh, Greece, uh, which, of course, Alexander the Great and successors took over the Persian Empire. And it was fairly clear in the time of the Gemara that the next one was uh, Rome. Problem is, Rome came and went, nothing happened. You understand? When you read in the time of the Tanoim, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Shemal, people like that, they're absolutely convinced that it'll be Bavel, Paras, Yavan, and then Edom. 
When Edom goes down the tubes, then comes the Mashiach. But Edom went down the tubes, the Western Roman Empire, here you see the two halves of the Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire went down tubes in the 400s. <clears throat> so where's the Mashiach? The opposite happened. Christianity got strong and persecuted Jews in an unprecedented way. So then you can say, well, the Eastern Roman Empire is still going on. You know. And that was around, in one form or another, for another thousand years. So you could continue to make that kind of claim. So throughout the Middle Ages, you say, Edom is not totally gone. Even though by the 12, 1300s, the Byzantine Empire was about that big. But nevertheless, it's Rome, which it was, until 1453 when the Turks destroyed it. And still nothing happened, although plenty of people in the 15th century, in the time of the Truman Sadeshan, were, were waiting that when Constantinople falls and the Turks take it over, is the coming of the Mashiach, because that's the end of Edom. But it wasn't. Consequently, you have to do like with the GPS, recalculating. You understand? And what you end up doing is say, well, the usual way is to say like this. The third one is Greece and Rome. The fourth one is another one. You understand? There are two visions in the book of Daniel. You can look this. This is child's play. I'm not telling you anything fancy over here. Uh, you do it in a second. There are two dreams in the, in, in, in the book of Daniel. One is in the second chapter. That's when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about the statue with the four elements. And then there's one in the seventh chapter, I think, where Daniel has a dream of the four monsters. Which, hence, the number four is of great significance in Jewish lore. Right? Uh, I do this for fun at the Seder, you know. But, you can, but you know, ever, ever since then, everybody's darshitting. Uh, I'll give you an example. We have four emos. Sarah, Rivka, Rachelea. Sarah's can I get bubble. Rivka, it's up to you to figure out how it goes. Sarah's can I get bubble. Rivka's can I get paras. Uh, you know, Leia is, 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 is Yavon, and, and Rachel, I guess, would be Edom, or something like that. And um, where's the Mashiach? And so if you're constantly recalculating, recalibrating, it kind of throws you off your equilibrium. The Jewish people were definitely thrown off the equilibrium when it comes to speculation about the future, and that's not good, and that's not healthy. Moreover, what happened after the fall of the Roman Empire was the rise of the Arab Empire, the Muslim Empire, look how big that was, much bigger than the Roman Empire. And then people started saying this, this wasn't predicted. So where does that come from? Until the consensus forms on people like the Ibn Ezra and the others, no, the, the Muslims are the fourth beast. You see, the third one is this, and when the Muslims go down, then the Mashiach is coming. Ken's on, you know, no, no way of knowing. But I'm trying to show you how they're constantly, constantly trying to connect the well-known prophecies or what they thought well-known with the Matthias in life which didn't work out to be so, so neat because the rise of these empires and the fall of the Roman Empire did not result in, in, in not, only not, not only did it not result in, in, a, in, a, in a Mashiach coming but in a drastic decline in, the, decline in the civil rights of the Jews. Not many people know but ever since the Emperor Caracalla in, in, in the early 200s, the Jews had complete and total civil rights in the Roman Empire. He made them all citizens. This is just interesting. He's the son of Septimius Severus, if that means anything. And uh, Caracalla is, is, is a famous, you know, he, he um, uh, for some reason, like the Jews, he, made, he, he gave them complete and total civil rights. When the Christians take over in the beginning of the Middle Ages, the Jews lose all their civil rights. When the Muslims come, take over the rest of the world, they lose all their civil rights. They become the demis, you know, the, the, the downtrodden uh, minorities. And so it's the opposite of what people expected.
And yet, paradoxically, the decline in Jewish status could not help but intensify Messianic longings. Because <laughs> right? if things got worse and worse, then it's got to be Ikvasin Mashiach. It's got to be the Chavli Mashiach. It's got to be the pre-Messianic era. Because how can it be? So this takes us to the first round of what we can trace in the Middle Ages and what we call rabbinic literature, Torah literature as we call it, and try to get something on a handle on all this. And what emerges is two broad streams, A and B. Uh, one, to, 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 to dumb it down, is the Gonim and the Rambam. One you find in the writings of the Gaonim. These were the Rosh Hashivas in, in Baghdad, before the time of the Roshonim. These would have, look at that Muslim empire. Let's go back a little bit. Go back one more. Yeah. Here's the Arab empire. Look what they conquered in, in a few years. It's amazing, right? They were in, in Arabia, uh, what do you call it? You know, sand jockeys. And then they took, no, that's how everybody looked at them. Then they took over the, the whole world. So they had the last live. So the first capital was Damascus. The second one was right there. It's smacking the belly button of the empire where I'm pointing right now in Baghdad. That's in the vicinity of the historic yeshivas of Sura and Pumbadisa, who, before too long, relocated to Baghdad, where they were for hundreds of years, because that's where the money was. You know, the rich Jewish bankers and things like that. Now, let's get one thing straight. The Gaonim, the yeshivas, they owned the Talmud. They knew the Gemara better than the Rishonim. You know, these are the big, big people. And Jews used to write them questions from all over the world called Shuvah Sagonim, the response of the Gonim. And one of the things they asked him was about meanings of the Talmud and all that sort of thing, Gemara. But other things they asked him were what we would call Agadat HaNashkafa, questions of theology or belief. And you already see, particularly in the 900s, um, a fair number of questions addressed to the Gonim from all over the place. When is the Mashiach coming? What's it going to be like Exactly. Because we read the Bible, we read the Talmud, we're all confused. And Sadigon, you've heard of him, who was the Rashid in Surah, and he died in 942, so, you know, in the early 900s, wrote a famous uh, philosophy book, Sefer Amunas Bedeos, in which he has a whole chapter in which he describes what he predicts. Now, he's not saying he knows, but he predicts to be the Messianic process, which is pretty wild. And it's more or less the one that's out there, especially the popular edition. And Rav Haigon, a little bit later, who's a, these are famous people of that time, um, lays it out in a famous responsum that I have uh, an English uh, precy of, from my favorite heretic. And listen to this, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a two paragraphs. So this is what he says in Aramaic, but this is what it says in English. And Rabbi says, people want to know, what's it going to be like the Mashiach Tzai? First, he says, the Mashiach and Yosef, together with a number of his followers, will conquer Jerusalem and proclaim himself king of Israel. The majority of the Jews in the diaspora will remain unconvinced that the end of days is near. When the Goyim, the nations of the world, hear that the Jews now have a king, they will drive the Jews out of their cities questioning the loyalty to their own realm now that the Jews have a kingdom of their own. Many Jews will be compelled to flee for safety to the desert surrounding their former places of residence. There they will dwell in tents and suffer severe deprivations. So great will be their sufferings 
that many will abandon the Jewish religion. The anti-Messiah Armelus, in other words, a nemesis, an evil prince named Armelus, will then attract a great following by means of magical powers that are his, and he will succeed in his plan to murder the Mashiach on Yosef. From this, further acts of apostasy will result. In other words, so great will be the shock at the killing of the Mashiach ben Yosef that many Jews will abandon the Jewish religion. Only the most faithful will remain loyal to Judaism. And then these, <laughs> then they will get the, what they call the Hebel Mashiach. Then they'll get the hard times, okay, of which the rabbis speak. But they will cry out to God in their trouble, and God will heed their cry. Elio Anobi will then appear to the Jews in the desert. He'll be followed by Mashiach ben David, who will bring back from the dead the Mashiach ben Yosef, so the Mashiach ben David can do Tchesamesim, can revive the dead. This resurrection will be the first of many miracles the Mashiach will perform. The Mashiach will then reign in Yerushalayim, where the Jews from the desert will come to live in safety and tranquility for many days, planting vineyards and building homes. Oh, and a rich Israel. But then comes Gog and Magog. Gog, hearing of the fame of the Mashiach, will raise a mighty army for an attack on Jerusalem. Gog and his army will be defeated, God visiting terrible calamities upon them. In order to appease the Mashiach, the nations will bring gifts to Israel. All the Jews of the world will then come to Jerusalem, some of them by miraculous means, until only the dead will remain behind in the diaspora. Then, the great trumpet will be sounded, and the dead will rise from their graves. At first, the risen dead will have the form that was theirs at the time of their death, meaning people are going to come back what they look like at the time they die. This is, those who die as old men will rise as old men and cripples as cripples in order to establish their identity, and then God will heal them. And they will all become young and whole in body. Seven shepherds will lead them. Odom, Sheis, Mitzushalach, Avram, Yaakov, Moshe, and David, and eight princes. Yishai, Shaul, Shmuel, Amos, Sephaniah, Chizkiah, Eliyahu, and the Mashiach. Which of the dead will be resurrected? Only those who either righteous all their lives, or did Teshuvah, repented their sins before their death. The resurrected dead will be shown how to rebuild the temple, although others say, he says, that the new temple will come down complete from heaven. All Jews, as well as their male and female slaves, will then become prophets. Remember that when we get to Shabtai Tzvi. All Jews, including their slaves, will become prophets. All the nations still alive will be converted to Judaism. Here it is. All the nations converted to Judaism and will go to the house of the God of Jacob. When the nations come to Mashiach, he will order them to stop making war with one another. All the wild animals will be banished from the Holy Land. As for people still alive when the Mashiach comes and who thus never to suffer the death decreed for all mankind, they will live to a ripe old age but eventually die. No one will die young, however, in that blessed age. Death will ultimately be destroyed forever. Eventually, there will be no more death. Those who died during the Messianic age will be resurrected to live for Olam Habo, forever. And then, the Shekhinah will come down and rest in the temple, appearing as a great column of fire, reaching from the earth to the heaven, and so bright that the light of the sun and the moon will be dimmed. The heavens and the earth will appear as if they were new, as if the old heaven and earth had been utterly trans- transformed. Some say that this state of affairs will last 7,000 years, have elapsed from Briah Olam. Others say it will last for many, many thousands of years. But eventually, the heavens and the earth will come to an end. The dead who have been resurrected will enter Olam Habo. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In the, new, in the world to come, the righteous will live forever. I bet you most of you have never heard that. But that's what was out there. And I'll say, this. now how do you get this? The answer, I'm not trying to be funny about this. 
you know, if you put this pusik here like this, and you put that pusik there, and, and maybe some of you recognize some of these things in the various prophecies that you read in Haftorah, Yeshaya, Yermi, Yecheskel, and so forth. Um, you know, they, we, we have these. The only thing is, Rosadi, Gon, Haigon, people like that, they, they say this applies to stage one, this applies to stage two, and there are other things out there from Gemaras, and this, this, this was out there. And by the way, this is the elites saying this, although we do know about the Gaonim when it comes to talking about Hashkafa and Agarata, they say one thing to the public and have another thing for themselves. They have secret letters from them in which they say when you talk about Hashkafa matters, you know, for the public, dumb it down because the public can't handle certain things. But nevertheless, this is what they, what, what they put out there. Um, they construct narratives. They make predictions. Uh, I have a wonderful book here from uh, Sarachek, Doctrine of Messiah in Medieval Jewish uh, Literature, 1932, where he, must have been a dissertation or something, where he goes through all the famous Rishonim, Rashi, Rambam, Ramban, Sadigon, Barbanel, and all that, and each woman he predicted the Mashiach were coming. Because everybody made a prediction. Not that they knew. They say, you know, I mean, we're not faking here. Not that they knew, but they say, if you put the Pesukim and Daniel this way, and the, the Pesuk this way, and do the Gematria here and here, each one, so... Rav Sadigon, for example, who died in 1942, his calculation, without giving you the details, is that the Mashiach will come in 965, which, of course, did not happen. Rashi, I remember, said the Mashiach was coming in 1305. The Barbanel happened, from memory, of 1507 or something like that. The Malbim, 1927. <laughs> okay? Um, but these are all guesses. They're the first ones to say, we don't know. Best one is the Rambam, where the Rambam says... It's an outrage for it. It says this in the Geras Tema. He says it's an outrage for people to make predictions about Mashiach. Chazal say that those who try to calculate the, the future, their bones should be blasted. It's a one-way ticket to perdition. In my family, it's twelve sixteen. <laughs> you see, based on the gematrias in, in, with, with Bilam. Uh, so, in other words, everybody had a tradition, um, and usually. It's 50 years from where you are now. So if I was making a prediction along those lines, I would say Mashiach will come about 2050. I don't know. Something generally along those lines. Whatever the case is, um, you see that there certainly was a vivid apocalyptic narrative. When I say apocalyptic, I mean that the idea is that Mashiach is coming. It's not going to be a nicey, nicey situation. It's war. It's violence. It's gogomogog. It's apostasy. It's death. It's the killing of one of the Mashiach. So, you know, the whole, so it's... There's a, a lot of violence associated with it, and that sure is what you get in Daniel and many of the other places, no question about it. Now, we know that in the Middle Ages, there's some famous pretenders, there's David Alroy in Persia, and others who claim to be Mashiach and raised armies. Listen closely. The false messiahs constitute a big physical danger for the Jews. Like this guy David Alroy, for example. There was a guy in Persia. And he says, I'm the Mashiach, and he got together an army of a few thousand men. The king of Persia like this. If you guys would take this seriously, that means there's a Jewish revolt against me. We'll kill up all the Jews. And the Jews had to persuade him to abandon the whole thing and sort of give himself up, or whatever. You get what I'm saying? It's not America where you can walk down the street and say whatever you want, and you know, it's freedom of speech. You go around saying, I'm the king of the Jews, and I'm kicking the guy out, <laughs> taking over. If the government really thinks the Jews are behind this, you're putting them in terrible peril. 
the great figure that emerges next, who dominates for a long time the conversations about Messianism, is the Rambam, who is not objective or, you know, knows, doesn't come to this issue in a purely, what shall I say, ivory tower way. Uh, because the Rambam writes in his uh, many writings of experiences that he had with false messiahs. And they always screwed up. And if you know who the Rambam was, he was born in Spain. In the last 15 or 20 years, when it was the good Muslims. And then, I forget, 16, 17, 18 years old, something like that. The Almohads, the bad Muslims took over, like you call today the ISIS. Something like that. And all of a sudden, Judaism was prohibited. And it was a big problem. Many Jews died for the faith. Many fled. Many semi-converted, converted, you know, the Ram himself had to run around and fake out. It was a really hard time. And he says, in the Garrett's Tamer, he says, when I was young, there was a guy in Cordoba, supposed to be learned, and he came with predictions based on astrology and astronomy and psukim that in the year, what was it, 1150 or something like that, the Mashiach was going to come. Not only the Mashiach didn't come, that's when the bad Muslims took over. So not only was a, a poly Yeshua, it was the opposite. Caused great destruction, which, which means that God was showing them the whole world what a big liar and idiot he was. You see? Moreover, when the Rambam came to Egypt, and, you know, he had to flee and fake him out and pretend to be a Muslim and all that. So when the Rambam eventually, and he was in Morocco, and then he later on moved to Israel, and he ended up in Egypt. When he ended up in Egypt, when the, uh, it was a time when a lot of wars were going with the Crusades, and um, in Egypt there was a large Jewish community, and the Jews used to pay their taxes to the Jewish community, and then they paid that to the king, to the sultan. And so whoever's in charge of the taxes, you get a little bit of sticky fingers over there, you can make off quite well. And consequently, there were Jewish community leaders who wanted to grab their power. And a real jerk named Zuto, and uh, he had a, a grand name, but Zuto means a, a small guy, an idiot. And I forget what his real name was. And he was able to persuade the sultan that he should be the Nagid, the, the, the chief Jew. And when he got the power, he tortured all the other Jews. And he got so far... <laughs> This is the show president gone wild. You understand? <laughs> he says, right? He says, the, uh, it got so much to power because he had Gaisha guards that worked for him. The king gave him guards to collect the taxes. They declared himself the Mashiach. Understand? And he said, if you don't bow down and kiss my shoes, I mean this, and things like this, I'll get you killed, I'll get you in trouble. And um, it's a long story. And this is a, a not so well known part of the Rambam's biography. When he came there, he played an important role in deposing this guy, although the guy's son then had the Rambam knocked out. And then another guy came in, persuaded Saladin to restore the Rambam. That's why he was the Nagid. The Rambam re eventually replaced this guy as the top dog Jew. The number one guy. No, the Rambam was in charge of all the money. I don't know if you know that. After 1188 or 1189. All the tax money went through his hands. He was honest, you know. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons, incidentally, that he stopped writing books. If you know how the Rambam works, until around 1190 or so, he wrote his farm. And after that, he lived another 15 years, he didn't write anything. And the reason is because Tsar Chetzibur took over the whole time, and, um, and, you know, and it needs to be attended to. So the Jewish people are, are uh, the sufferers, because if you know the writings of the Rambam, he promised to write many interesting works, and he never got around to it. Um, so here's somebody who had first-hand experience with, with the phenomenon of megalomanias and false messiahs. Moreover, 
is very famous that when he was in Egypt, his fame spread. And Yemen, which is not that far away from Egypt, underwent a, a kind of an ISIS-type persecution at that time. And the Jews of Yemen, you know, heard about the Ram and wrote him a letter saying, what should we do in this situation? And he composed his very famous Igeris Tema, the epistle to the Jews of Yemen, in Judeo-Arabic, in which he called Muhammad an idiot and things like this. So he really took his life in his hands if anybody told on him. Yes, he does. And uh, at great length, he calls him an idiot and, uh, and an epileptic. The, um, the, it's, 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 it's quite a, that's the most interesting, in my opinion, the most interesting thing the Rambam wrote, the Igeris Tema. And, uh, and he talks about the fact over there that in response to the terrible persecutions, first of all, a lot of Jews in Yemen are converting to Islam under the terrible pressure. And then, among those who aren't, there's a guy who's stepping forth and saying, this is Mashiach site, that's the terrible suffering. When, when ich bin de Mashiach, I'm de Mashiach. You understand? And he had all these claims that he dashed and psukim to prove his point. And what do we do about this? And the Rambam, first of all, says, stay normal. <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's a very interesting letter. Stay normal. You know, middle of the road. Don't, don't go nuts. Okay. Chazak, chazak yadayim koshlos ubirchos something amiso. You know, like the, it says in almost. Keep your hands and your knees from buckling. Chazak yadayim koshlos ubirchos amiso. I forget how it goes. Anyway, the, uh, and he goes on to, and he talks at great length about the subject of the Mashiach and all the rest of it. Which will take us too far afield to go in here, uh, time for time reasons. But it's very interesting. And one of the things, and I'm going to read you part of this now. One of the things he says is, "Don't believe anybody says Mashiach because he's full of baloney, right?" And one of the things he says about there at great length is the uh, is the following. I'm reading a translation from the Arabic. Now you wrote to me about the predicted time at the end, people are telling me, no, this is not it, this is something else. Yeah, that's right, just leave it at that. He says, that you write to me about the predicted time at the end, that, you know, these, this guy says, I can prove to you that 1181 or whatever year he was in is, is the year, because if you take the Pusik, turn it backwards and spin it upside down four times, it comes out to that. And the Sadiqon himself also indulged in the Messianic speculation. My friends, he says to the Jews in Yemen, first thing you have to understand is, that when the Mashiach is coming, it's not possible for anybody to know. Which is quite a statement. I say the word no. It's not possible for anyone to know. Because in the end of Daniel, the angel says to Daniel, no one will figure it out. That's what he says. The, thing, the book is, is sealed, let many speculate, he says. He showed to the Rabbi Arba Das. Let many speculate, but no one will get it right. He says, the fact that many speculate is a prediction that's in the book of Daniel, where he says, He showed to Rabbi Arba Das that many will speculate, but they'll all be wrong. Okay? And uh, so forth. And then he makes the point rhetorically. Even the predicted end that was explicitly spelled out in the Chumash, everybody got it wrong. It's about the 400 years after which the Jews would leave Egypt. Leave Egypt. You all know that at the Brisbane of Basarim, God tells Avram, your children will be slaves for 400 years 
leave. But nobody knew when the 400 years was. Lo no Nobody knew what it was, and everybody had the different opinions and doubts in those centuries. Many thought, and this is the simplest way, 400 years in Egypt. From the time that Yaakov arrived in Egypt, there would have to be another 400 years. You know, like we do in Pesach and the Haggadah, 190, an extra two this, 400 years. And others said, no, you have to start counting, whoops, you have to start counting the 400 years from the time Pharaoh actually enslaved them. Which is 70 years after Yaakov showed up in Egypt. And some people thought that the 400 years counts from the Brisbane and Basarim. When Avram said these words to, when God said these words to Abraham, for whom I meant Bain of and indeed, we know about the tribe of Ephraim, it's famous, that when 400 years from the Brits and son was over, there were Jews who left, even though they weren't supposed to. They left 30 years too early. They were absolutely convinced that this is it. So in other words, we don't know what happened, but a messianic figure appeared among the tribe of Ephraim, so let's go. And what happened was they were all wiped out, and the survivors suffered an increase in the servitude. When Pharaoh says, double the bricks and the straw and all the rest, and that's the kind of thing that was going on in the 30 years after some Jews left. So he puts a little spin on the story over here, that they increased the slavery because they saw some tried to leave. He says, that's what Chazal tells us. In other words, and they're referred to in Tehillim. Amiti, the real answer, which was what? Nobody got that right. The actual meaning of the Pasuk, without going into details, was from the birth of Yitzchak, and nobody knew until Moshe showed up. And started to do things. Moshe didn't say like this. Ich bin Mashiach. He said, watch this. Doms, right? Machas That's a different story. You see? That's a different story. All the others just sound like this. Believe in me. Moshe didn't come and say, believe in me. From day one, he started doing things. The Rambam in this letter to Yemen says, so if that's true, of that time when they at least had a, a fixed number, they knew 400 years. So we don't have any idea how long this one's supposed to live. If a fixed time period, what do they call it, terminus aquam, right? They knew when it's going to be over, and they got all that wrong. Then how much more so the current goals which was so terrifying in its longevity that the prophets all wondered all about it, and so on and so forth. And therefore the Chacham say, don't try to even figure it out. So you see over here that the Ramam was utterly opposed because he says, all but one, all but who claim to be Messianic figures, literally don't know what they're talking about. The most they're doing guessing. They cannot know. Only a Moshe knew. <laughs> you show me a guy who's like a Moshe, then we'll talk. And you'll see that these uh, become, uh, you know, uh, codified in his book. So, basically, the Rambam was quite aware of the danger of false messianic figures. 
he understood the problems of trying to do these calculations shtick. How many years in Daniel? You know, Daniel says it'll be Arab uh, Abukar, Alpine Shloshmil, 1300 mornings and evenings, whatever that means, or 70 weeks, or from 1290 to 1335. You really think you're going to know? And basically, the Rambam is indicating over here that he has no time for the Oilam Goylam, the masses are asses kind of messianism. The Oilam is always dumb. And don't fall for anything, and don't be like that. Um, the Rambam composed these ideas over many decades, and finally, as you know, he put all these ideas of his into the Mishnah Torah when he composed it. But in a mature Hebrew, very carefully edited form. That's what the Mishnah Torah is. Okay? What you see over there, just take it from me for now, that when you see these Hashkava type things, if you know from his earlier writings, he writes about it in a great length, but then he chunks it down like an Ilchus tube and place like that into uh, a well-edited final draft by the time you get to the Mishnah Torah. And what does he do when he finally gets over there? He lays out an anti-Gaonic position, which is you know, very clear. And I'm sure many of you have seen this at one time or another, but here you have on the screen in front of you, this at the very end, of the Mishnah Torah. And remember, the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam really wrote, I mean, you're going to laugh at what I'm about to say, the Rambam says he wrote it for the dumb masses. The Talmud Chacham don't need a Mishnah Torah, he says. But for the, for the regular people, you'll have a Chumash, you'll have my book, you'll know what to do. He wasn't talking about the big scholars and all that, who can do it themselves. Of course they do it. But for the regular person out there, they got so many things wrong, get, you know, listen, you could do a lot worse than go by Shittas Harambam. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're always on good ground if you go Shittas Harambam. Not everybody partner. You, you, you could do a lot worse. So that's what that is. And he lays out there at the end of the book, 14 volumes, right? Yad HaZoko. At the very end of the 14 volumes, he has two chapters where he's devoted to the Messianic idea in which he clearly lays out a very rational and very skeptical approach to the Mashiach where he says, as you see in front of you, that the Mashiach is a figure with a litmus test. Like I said, Moshe didn't believe, they didn't believe Moshe because he says, I'm Mashiach. They believed Moshe because he started to do things. So in the future, when some Mashiach comes forward and says, I'm a Moshe, it's not like you've got to believe me because I'm a Hasidic Rebbe or something like that. You've got to believe me? Show! So he said, the Mashiach is the person who's going to restore the Malchus based on the Yoshna, like we would say today, the state of Israel in a from way, a Torah way. Hamashiach, Bona, Hamigdash. You show me a guy today who can get the Arabs the heck out of Jerusalem and out of Israel and build a base on Migdash and get away with it. Hats off to you. You're the Mashiach. But if you don't do it, shut up. Right? If you don't do it, then don't tell me anything. This is a Mashiach. And all the other stuff is just talk. And we know talk about these, what that means throughout Jewish history is a liar. Now you find me a guy like that and who does, doesn't believe in that. Who doesn't expect that. He is denying the Chumash as he has a whole bunch of Pesukim to back it up there because many people said, you know, where does it say the Messianic idea in the Bible? And the Rambam, I'm sure as you know, in the Animamin says it's one of the 13 principles so where you get it from. See, he assembles Pesukim over there he also says, Alpha Parsha's Bilam, you know, in today's Parsha, this week's Parsha he talks about there, 
about the Mashiach Rishim, Mashiach Sheni, and I'm not going to, you know, go and read it all. And I'll skip over to uh, three, Halacha three. Al Yawal Daika. Now here he's speaking very specifically against the Gaonim. Because they said the Mashiach is going to fly through the air, do Tchis Amesim, heal the sick, and do amazing miracles, open the ground, you know, like that. And he says, Al Yawal Daika, Melch Mashiach, Sarklas it's not true. The Mashiach is not somebody who has to do miracles. He's not a superhuman. I'll repeat, he's not a superhuman. Whoa. <laughs> right? He says, like, like the fools say. Well, we just saw some of the <laughs> people who wrote it were some pretty distinguished scholars. He said, all that is junk. Because of, of, of the example of Barkocha. Rabbi Kiva backed Barkocha, and as far as the Rambam is concerned, Barkocha was a great general, like a Judah Maccabee type. Right? He didn't do any miracles. He organized the Jews, and he looked like he was getting somewhere at the beginning. He was defeating the Romans. Okay. And if, he, and if he would defeat the Romans and rebuild Jerusalem based on English, okay. <laughs> you know, he didn't do it. He got killed. And when he got killed, so he wasn't the right guy. But he says over here that uh, they didn't say do miracles, fly through the air, revive the dead, and all the rest of it. Now, I cannot forbear, but share, if you know the Riva, there's a... This is not exactly true. The Rambam, when he constructs these things, cut and paste. You, you always have to. Every region does this because there's so many contradictory statements in the Agathas throughout the Talmud and the Medrash. So he cuts and pastes. So there is a place in the Gemara where it says, it's, it's what I talked about last year in Sanhedrin, where it says, they went to the Mashiach and they said, to Barkochah rather, and they said, can you smell, can you smell who's right and wrong in a court case? I mean, can you just discern by looking at them? And he couldn't say they killed him. So it sounds like they demanded a miracle from him. So this has been a big product of research and Farshim and the Rambam and all the rest of it. Hisham, this one you can go into. And I'm, I'm serious. And, you know, did he have the gears or not, all the rest of it. But he clearly is saying, I don't know what that's all about. Barkochah was, as I say before, a Judah Maccabee type. He was, if I, if I can use this expression, Lahavda, he says, imagine a from Moshe Dayan, something like that, right? From guy, victorious leader, Kick, like I said, kick the Arabs out, recover Jerusalem for us, build the base of Megashot thing, and make the world like it. <laughs> you know, like Truman used to say, you do that, that's a Mashiach. Because it is. You see? You don't do that, don't talk. And in any way, the Ram goes on to say, the Torah is a normal document, not a crazy document. Torah doesn't change up and down. And you can't add new ideas. These ideas about a Mashiach being a superior in the Torah, anyone who tries to come up with new stories of uh, eschatology and apocalyptics, which is these messianic sort of things, and which there are many midrashim over there, the Ram says these are Rishayim and Apikursim, which is which is quite a statement. Okay, so he knew what's out there, and he knew what the masses believe. And he knew all the stuff, but that's the biography of the Rambam, if you know anything about him at all. He spent all his life saying, the trouble is that Jewish people don't understand Judaism. Therefore, uh, I mean, consider what I'm about to tell you. The Rambam was a genius. If he wanted to, he could write Chaim Brisker. Correct? He could do unbelievable chadushim. 
and also himself will blow people away because he was a genius. And he didn't do that. 95% of what he did is to explain the ABCs of Judaism. All of his writings are popular in nature. Almost all of his writings are popular in nature. Why did he do that? He said this is his sense of achrayas, of responsibility for the Jewish people. They don't have Judaism right, I'm going to at least put on paper they shouldn't have the Judaism right. And one of the features that they have read is about Mashiach, and I'm going to try to get it down there. Mashiach is not some guy, you know, from a movie flying through the air. Mashiach is a great individual. We define his greatness as being from and this, but mainly, can you deliver? Like I said before, and to put it in terms of nowadays, and here we are about to start the three weeks, you show me somebody that can get the Arabs out of Jerusalem, you show me to you figure some way to get the Arabs out of, out of uh, you know, Israel, uh, <laughs> he gets my vote. You understand? And there you have it. Therefore, the Rama goes on to say, and look how long he is in this. You find me a guy who's from, okay, number one. And he comes from David Melch. He's descended, he has the right yichus. And he's Hogebatorosik, Mrs. David. So he learns and he does mitzvahs and all the rest of it. Torah He should not be a Karite. Okay? And if he is like a one-man NCSY, he can get everybody to become religious Shemesh Shabbos. He's a very charismatic person, and he can get to hold Jewish people to do the right thing. And he can fight the battles of the Lord. Remember that phrase, because that's very enigmatic. I know what the Rambam meant, which means he'll kick the Arabs out. And anybody who tries to mess with us, he'll, he'll beat them off. But he doesn't use those words clearly. He said he will fight... The Milcham Hashem, the battles of the Lord. Harezi Becheskin Mashiach. That guy has a pretty good claim to be Mashiach. He has the right Yichas, he has the right Frumkai, he has the right, uh, you know, what should I say, charisma. Im And if he can, like I say, if he can beat the Arabs and they get Obama to go along, Obama Migdashim come and get us to rebuild the temple, the Kabbis Nechah Israel and moved all the Jews to Israel. How is the Mashiach body? That is the Mashiach. So notice there's a litmus test. There's a checklist if I can do it. It's empirically verifiable. It's empirically verifiable. You claim Mashiach, I got no problem with it. Now show me what you can do. As soon as they start to say, well, uh, leave the room. Okay. If the guy tried and got killed, then he's not the right. He wasn't a Mashiach. He, he may have been a, a courageous and heroic individual. Right? He wasn't a Mashiach. And it was a, a, a Nisoyan, because it says in the book of Daniel, it's predicted in the book of Daniel that there will be many tests that will come down the, the, the line. Meaning, long ago, this was written in the Torah, in the Bible, that there will be false situations to test the credulous. Right? And the masculine will, will be nichshal. There's even people who are educated and consider themselves scholars will stumble. They shouldn't feel so arrogant like they really understand what's going on in the Torah, because you don't. And you'll get egg all over your face. All of this, of course, exactly happened in Hamshat Tzvi, as we all know. Big rabbis and others. And so he said, that's what it is. Now, I'm going to read you from, uh, does he have in here? Yeah. This is the censored part of the Rambam that they've only recently put back in the uh, text. There was a, you know, the Catholic Church censored in the Middle Ages. After Yeshua Notri, even Jesus, who claimed to be a Mashiach and was killed in Bezin, he was also predicting the book of Daniel, that there'll be um, bad Jews who will try to 
hold up uh, visions and they will stumble. And you can't get worse than him because instead of Mashiach helping the Jews, rebuilding Israel, rebuilding the temple, bringing all the Jews from all over the world in there, fixing up Yiddishkeit, all the rest of it, he did the opposite. And it's caused the opposite. So he's, sure, he's, he's anti-Mashiach if, if you want to get down to it. Now, by the way, this is the Rambam's version of the Jesus story. It's not the historical version. This is the one that he comes through. And different Rishonim have different, completely different versions of the, of, of the Yeshu story. I mean, I just want you to know that. Right? There's no one um, uh, narrative. It's part of the fact that we don't have a theology. And the Ram goes on to say, we can't figure out God's ways. As the prophet says, his thoughts are not our thoughts. He's above us. This whole business with Christianity and Islam, with this Jesus guy and then the Muslim guy who came up after him, the Ishmaelite, and why are they so powerful and rule the world? And here they are in 2015. It's still going on. It's all part of what he calls a historical evolution. The God is little by little bringing mankind towards a certain monotheism. Okay? Thanks to the rise of Christianity and thanks to the rise of Islam, everybody in the world, or at least his world, is talking about the Old Testament, is talking about the Talmud and the predictions. Of course, the Christians are interpreting it their way. The Muslims, of course, obviously are interpreting it their way. But in the pagan world, like for example, you went to China today, you said there's a Mashiach. They don't even know what that means. Right? It's, it's completely out of their cultural context. Go, 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 go to India, Japan. It eh, doesn't mean anything. But if you go to Europe, you go to North Africa, you go to the Middle East, and places like that, they instantly know what this is all about. And the monotheistic principles of Judaism and the Messianic idea have spread all over the world to the faraway islands, he says. And they discuss it in, in great detail. Um, but as he gets in, in, in the very end of this uh, paragraph, when the real Mashiach comes, you see what he is made out of, then they'll all recognize their mistake because they're already beholding in the Indian, so to speak. They will have already thought in great detail about what the Messiah concept is. They'll just say, we were wrong. This is his take on the subject. And then he goes on to hammer the point home in the last chapter of the book. And I'm doing this at length because this becomes the most well-known presentation of the Messianic idea in Judaism, simply because the Rambam's book got out there a lot more than the Jews that go in, and still do, uh, which is exactly what he wanted. And he goes on to say, don't even think for a moment, that things will change in the Messianic era, that there'll be like, and there'll be miracles, and you know, it'll rain money and things like that. Oh yeah, that some change in natural order. Things will be the same they are now. I, what do you do with the prophecies? Like in Isaiah, that the lion will lie down with the lamb, and the natural order, lions eat lambs. So what does it mean? Uh, no, mashal v'chida, it doesn't mean it literally. It's just a mashal. It's, it's, it's this expression saying, uh, now you're going to laugh at what I'm about to say. There'll be peace in the Middle East. 
<laughs> right? And then lying lie down with the lamb. The Jews would be a lamb. I get it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, a bit, it's easier to believe the lion will than the lamb than to be in peace in the Middle East. I get it. But uh, that's what it means. Suppose tomorrow, let's just pretend. Suppose tomorrow the Arabs totally change their mindset. Let's make a peace in Israel and move Mikana Haba. The lion would be lying down with the lamb. Because we're the weak ones. And they're not going to bother us. And no one does Gzela and all the rest of it. Instead, they would concentrate on building a better world. It's, it would be, make sense for me. And then the prophecies that, you know, nation will not fight nation and they'll instead spend the money on cancer research. Why not? But this is the meaning of the phrase. It doesn't mean literally. Okay? That's the way it goes with all these verses that discuss the Messianic era. They're not literal. Moshe Haim. And don't ask me, he says, what the marshal is, because we'll only know when it happens. So anybody, so again and again, he's hammering home the point that those who talk about don't know what they're talking about. And only when the time comes will they know what they're talking about. And they'll see in retrospect what the meaning is. The same way in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, they only knew when the 400 years are over, after it's all over. And when somebody tells you, no, 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 it's this way and this way, and the Zohar says this, and the Pusik means that, and all the rest of it, and this guy did a miracle, or whatever it is, whether you're talking about in Europe or America or anywhere else, they literally don't know what they're talking about. Only when it happens, we'll know what they're talking about. And it's a famous statement, although it's only one of many. The Ram, as they say, cuts and pastes. So he says, Shmuel says in the Gemara that the only difference in the Messianic era now will be they'll be independent and free and totally at peace state of Israel. Shiba Malchus. Get it? If you had a state of Israel, the Arabs didn't bother anybody. And we just had as much peace as Luxembourg. That'd be Mashiach time, according to uh, Shmuel. And it ain't there by a long shot. Um, what do you do with the fact that in the Bible they go through such great lengths to describe this in detail? It appears, he says, I don't know for sure, because you can't. It appears that there'll be a Gogo Mogog, there'll be some kind of World War III, but maybe it'll be intellectual, you know? Seems like some prophet, a prophet, I say, I mean that. Remember that in the shop, they say, a real prophet will arise before the Gogo Mogog. Maybe. And the whole purpose that we know of of of, of Navi will be not to do miracles, but to try to restore family harmony among the Jewish people, which is the biggest miracle that will never happen. And so, you know, we don't know. Somebody says, I got it wrong, that it's out of order, the Mashiach, Elio come first. It doesn't matter, he says. Nobody will know for sure until it happens. Get that straight. So notice, whenever people talk about this, pinch yourself twice. The prophets didn't get it clear. They say in the prophetic books, we don't have it clear. Daniel is told by the angel at the end of the book, you know, you have a general idea, but you don't see it clearly. So how can me standing here today say so can see it clearly? Even the Chazal don't have a tradition when it comes to this. They're guessing. They're guessing when they read the verses over there. Now, they're greater people than us. So Rabbi Kiva's guess is more important than my guess. But at the end of the day, it's a guess. That's exactly why, as I started with my remarks tonight, you have differences of opinion 
When a Gadatah questions a radical difference of opinion of what it's going to be like, because nobody knows. None of this matters. Right? What matters is believe in God, keep Shabbos, Kashas, Tanish Bacha, wait for Mashiach, and, and all that stuff. That, that matters. Don't get too involved in this Zagaratos. And don't get involved in these matters, sorts of things, he says. And don't really get, uh, make them the main part of your religion. Because the road to messianic speculation does not lead to Avas Hashem and it doesn't lead to Yeras Hashem, which is quite a statement. Okay? Instead, you get them wrapped up in messianic fantasies. It does not lead to Avas Hashem, it doesn't lead to Yeras Hashem, below Yechashev Kitzim, and don't try to figure out when it's coming out over there. And, um, I mean, I'll just skip to the last part. Um, and since the hour is late, maybe we'll close it down over here or just in another two minutes. But uh, he goes on to say like this, and anyway, what do you need the Mashiach for? Right? The Rambam is an intellectual. I'm asking a good question. What do you need the Mashiach for? He says, He says, the reason that Jews, the sages, yearn for the time of Mashiach, we don't have any domination of the world. Do I want to rule South America? Do I want to rule Southeast Asia, Africa? Who wants, you know, what do you want it for? For look at the issue of the not to beat up the Goyim. What do you want? That's not a lot. What do you want it for? For look at the issue of the and not to get credit from the United Nations. We don't need them if they just leave us alone. For look at the list of the smoke, and not to live a life of partying and, and material prosperity, uh, because we already have that in America, for example. But the Jews are menucha and be able to devote themselves to the studying of higher spirituality. That's what he says. And nobody will bother them. In order to, through, this is Maimonidean philosophy, through improving the soul, you get a better afterlife. You understand? Because only one to connect with the active intellect really gets the to heaven. But the point is, whatever it is, he says, ultimately, what's it all about? It's all about just leave us alone. The problem with Israel, where Israel's not like trying to take over the Middle East. They don't want it. Right? Raise your hands if you think Egypt should take over uh, Egypt. <laughs> right? Raise your hand if you think Israel should even take over uh, Jordan or something. Like that. You know? <laughs> Keep them away. Just stay out of my uh, property. Right? I don't want to do that. I want to do myself. What, but what do I want for it? To eat three meals a day? I mean, eat three meals a day. So what do you, so what do you want to do? So nobody will bother Jewish people and they can devote themselves to higher things. And in the Messianic era, the Rambam, who could not have imagined our, our lives today because we live much better than he's imagining the Messianic era. He's saying there'll be no wars and kin and tachris, there'll be economic prosperity, and all the dainties will be around the place. I'll tell you again, if Rama ever walked into the supermarket today, he said, this can't be. This is, this is, this is a fantasy. People try to actually know who God is, which is the highest human uh, aspiration. And they'll understand deep and hidden things in the Torah, as it says, that the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters of the ocean cover that. Meaning, it's not about politics, not about war. So, what exactly do you want the Mashiach for? You see? So, get rid of this business of a supernatural individual, other individual, the Tres Amesim, as I said before. 
and all the other things of the Pesukim, and nobody knows what those Pesukim are. The Rambam, in other words, therefore laid out more clearly than anyone else a non-mystical, although this is profoundly mystical, but you understand what I mean when I say that, a non-mystical uh, uh, conception of the Messianic process as a Messianic figure. And the Rambam's book were, were, were the most reprinted in the Middle Ages, obviously. Um, the other opinions, nevertheless, were there Sabrosa and remained among the Jewish masses for many centuries, the other version that I just told you for, and pop up from time to time. Um, and therefore you have this split between the elite conceptions and the uh, mass and the mass conceptions. The Rambam uh, leaves, and I leave with this tonight, with the first round of Messianism, which is, but watch out. You understand? The key and most important element of the Rambam's conception of the Mashiach is its empirical nature. You understand? Its empirical nature. Is it, somebody says Mashiach, Totepes. Right? You say Mashiach, so do something. Show you are. If you can't show you are, that's a demonstration that you're not. And when a person says, no, 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 no. I'm going to do it in a different way. And if you don't believe me, you're an unbeliever and all the rest of it. I'm saying, you know, show, show me something. Right? Show me something. Uh, I'll conclude tonight with a funny story. And that is, it just came to my mind. And uh, used to be Rabbi Maimon, the head of Mizrahi in Israel. He was best friends with Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion was atheist. And so Maimon had a son in law, Yitzhak Rafael, who, found, who was a big mocker to Moser of Kuk, if anybody's old enough to remember. And Yitzhak, who was a minister of religion, Yitzhak Rafael went to his father in law, and he said, Rabbi Maimon, Shver, you're not a Mizrahi, you're Mizrahi. I mean that. You understand? But nevertheless, you're a religious Jew. So how do you understand it? I mean, just, I know you're a super scientist, I know you mean it well, and all the rest. Isn't it weird, after 2,000 years, Ben-Gurion, Machal Shabbos, you know? Like, how do you, why did God do that? Doesn't it bother you? And he answered, very famously, he says, no, Adrob, it had to be that way. He said, what do you mean it had to be the way? He said, if Ben-Gurion would be a Shomer Shabbos, and after 2,000 years, would found, for the first time, a Jewish homeland state of Israel and beat up the enemies, he would be the Mashiach. And he's not. Good night. And then with that, we will get down to business. I spent two uh, fairly long uh, talks trying to give the background because that's what historians do. Anybody can read a book and you can read an account uh, right or wrong. Uh, after all, we weren't there. And uh, it's not exactly history. history. You try to put it into some kind of a context. You get it? So if you simply tell me you were born in this and this year and all the rest of it, it means something. But if you tell me you're born in Forest Park or Lower Park Heights and this is time and next door to you lives so-and-so and this is where you went to show or didn't and this is what was going on at that time or not, then all of a sudden you get a fuller picture and you start to flesh out the little details. We are stuck with a very famous story in Jewish history, a very embarrassing one. Everybody got egg over their face. Everybody got over their face. And the accounts are not clear. You'll be shocked to hear. And there's no such thing as an official history of Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, both sides end up suppressing a lot of information when the whole theological bubble bursts. Both sides tell lies about each other and about, the, you know, they, they swing the story their own way, just as every one of us do. If I ask you a question about your family or something you really care about, everybody lies like a trooper. And there's no question that... Uh, this happens. It's become very hard to pick out the facts, such as we can. 
and uh, there's no hard and fast way of doing so. So you're just going to accompany me uh, tonight through a uh, minefield, and we're going to do the best we can. I uh, spent two, uh, over two, I guess two and a half hours uh, trying to give a background, because without that, it doesn't make any sense. I didn't even finish, but I did most of it. And you saw how complicated, those of you who were here saw how complicated it is. It's just the subject of messiness of a Mashiach. And before the Kabbalah enters the public sphere, as it were, and the lack of clarity, the Jewish religion, once again, is not a theological religion with, with ideological precision, you know, that you know, we believe in very hard and fast kinds of uh, you know, doctrines. Every time somebody tried to do that, like the Rambam, the others knocked it down. As I mentioned last time, the Rambam says the belief in the Mashiach is one of the 13 principles. And Chazdei Kreska says, no, it's not. <laughs> you know? And the Barbanel says, no, it's not. And so you end up with that kind of a situation. All this got intensively uh, more complicated with, with the appearance of the Kabbalah because in Kabbalistic messianism, the focus in Kabbalah in general is not on the physical world, but the metaphysical world. I'll say it again, they're not really that interested in the Zohar, the Kisiarizal, and the other things of what goes on in the world of the physical. In the physical sense, why'd you catch a cold? You had germs. In the metaphysical sense, the heck with that, why'd you catch a cold? <laughs> you know, what was the reason God hit you with a cold that week? Different way of looking at things. If you want to take it in a broader spectrum, in, in, in physical terms, historical terms, what's the cause of the Civil War? Oh, the slavery issue, the, the states' rights, you know, the tariff. Metaphysically, why did God choose to strike America with this bloody internecine war at this and this time? That's a different type of question, different kind of answer. Um, and so, when we get to Kabbalistic messianism, the language that you find is one that focuses intensively on in the notion of tikkun. And tikkun, of course, means something was broken, you're trying to be a in it. So what is it that's, that's broken? The world. And this takes us out of the story of Israel for a moment and into the story of mankind. Because we get so focused on the Jewish experience, because we're Jewish, that we forget that the Bible discusses before the Jews ever came along the human race. Oh my goodness, look how lousy the human race is today. They're doing a very good job of destroying each other, destroying the environment, destroying the world, all the rest of it. How did that happen? I saw God was a nice guy, created a nice world. What happened? Well, it's a constant story. And as we all know the story, Adam and Eve are put into paradise, and then they screw up, and they get thrown out of paradise, and they're trying to get back. It's kind of interesting that at the same time Shabtai Tzvi appears in the 1600s, what are they writing in England? Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained. Isn't that interesting? So um, the Jews are not the only ones focusing on these kinds of themes. But in the case of Jewish thought, Machshavet Yisrael, especially when the Kabbalah intermingles with general theosophy and philosophy, the exile of the Jews from Israel ends up paralleling the exile of Adam and Eve from Paradise. The goal of mankind ever since has been to re-enter Paradise. But has one do so? But as long as the Bnei Yisrael are not living normal Eretz Yisrael, that is a litmus test or a sign that the world is screwed up. This is the famous writings of the Maral, who lives in the 1500s, and who therefore takes the Jewish historical specific ethnic experience and universalizes it to say it's of literally cosmic and universal import, 
And you nations of the world, if you want to follow the morale, if the United Nations wants to solve all the problems of the world, get off of Israel's back. You understand? And you say, how does that work? I'm talking metaphysically, tomorrow I'll say. If you know the Bible, if mankind wants to get back into the Garden of Eden, let the Jews first get back into Israel. And then it'll, it'll spin out. The specifics of how it spins out, they're not interested in. Maybe we'll new scientific discoveries. Maybe they'll land something on the moon. Maybe they'll come with new inventions. You know, who cares? That I leave to the mundane and stupid world of science and technology. But the real motivating and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, causative factors lie in the world of the invisible. That's this whole mode of thought. That's called Kabbalah. Now, how does one do this? How are the Jews able to re-enter paradise? How are you supposed to fix the broken situation of the Jews, which will then lead to fixing, in some sense, the broken situation of the human race? So no more war, no more ISIS. This is not a bad idea. If we took all the money we're spending on the weapons, but you know, we all know this, right? It's not necessary today for anybody in the world anywhere to be hungry. Isn't that sad? It's not necessary for anybody in the world today to go without shoes. We have the stuff. We have extra. But it's not going to work out. So how do you fix this? Well, if you're a Kabbalist, um, through Torah and Mitzvahs, and not through Maccabean Wars, the answer is not going to be through uh, battles with armies. It may express itself physically, perhaps along the way, in that way, but that's not the real motive force that's going to do it. What you believe over there, that the primary uh, realm of activity is the metaphysical realm and as I mentioned last week, the constitutive elements of the, of the metaphysical realm are the Bible, the Torah, and the Mitzvahs. And by the way, this is very racist. The guy don't count. So it depends what every Jewish man, every Jewish woman does. Every time she benches licht, has unbelievable consequences. Failure to bench licht has a different set of consequences. Every time he says shema, or puts in tefillin, or helps a little old lady across the street, or whatever the case is, Right? All the different kind of misses, you don't realize what it is you're doing. And it's not simply you're fulfilling the word of God in some philosophical sense and listening to orders. That's good too, as they say, you know. Nothing wrong with punching the clock. That's good too. But it's a lot more than that. And if it's done in the right amount, in the right time, in the right way, it will lead to uh, literally cosmic consequences beyond your imagination in a positive or negative sense, hopefully positive sense. And I'll be returning to this more. Later on, um, one more piece of this. Quality counts more than quantity in these mitzvahs. This is the world of the Arizal. Right? Especially when he comes out, he has what they call the Sefer Kavanos. Right? And he doesn't mean Kavano like you say you have Kavano when you're davening, that your mind doesn't wander something else. It's much more than that. It's the architecture of pipeworks, what they call Tinoros, and a whole uh, huge, complicated, um, metaphysical structure of uh, channels and things that are going this way and that way. Uh, and you, it's like a Rube Goldenberg machine. That's the best I can say. And so when you do a mitzvah, or nevera, or nevera, you don't realize. You trigger this off like a Rube Goldberg thing, which sets off this, which sets off this, which sets off this, which, off this, which led to an earthquake somewhere, or not. If you want to put it in a nice way, and I'm saying, that, I don't mean to be funny when I say this, you put it in a nice way, you had opportunity to say Lush and Hara. And you say, you know, I'm not going to do it. Because of that, the bullet missed the guy in the Gaza War. And you say, I guess, what do I have to do with that guy? If you knew how the pipeworks work, you knew your soul or whatever, something like that, is connected to that individual, and so on and so forth. Now look at the other way. You idiot, you said Lashon Hara differed, a guy got killed. 
Can you live with yourself? It's a different way of thinking. That's what I'm trying to get across. It's a completely different way of thinking. And as I said before, transfers the realm of conflict, significant conflict, from the physical to somewhere else. Okay? And that the, uh, the real uh, weapons and tools end up becoming the constituent elements of the Jewish religion, which are the Torah and the Mitzvahs. And especially the reason, if you, if, look what I'm doing. If I do a particular mitzvah, for example, and I know how to guide it through this network with thoughts, I want this to do this, and I want this to do this. None of us, nobody does this today. I mean, nobody regular. If I do this, this, and this, but if you do raise your hand now, and I'm going to see a liar. You know, the, uh, so if you do this, this, or that, um, it actually get more bang for the buck. So, you know, here's two ladies at bench lift, I say before. One does it with thinking just about her family. The other one does it with... Uh, so each one is good, but this one only gets... You know, two miles to the gallon, and this one gets fifty miles to the gallon, so to speak. That's the basic theory uh, behind all these sorts of things. Okay. Now, in other words, by the 17th century, by the 1600s, in other words, Maimonidean notions of an empiricist messianism rooted in the physical world have been displaced by Kabbalistic notions of a messianic process whose real struggle takes place in the metaphysical world. Once that struggle is successfully concluded, it will then manifest itself in the physical world. So let's say, for argument's sake, we need to get the mitzvah 4,753,201 uh, and you get there. Ding! Amazing things start to happen. You understand? Amazing. The Palestinians get up and they say, I guess, oh, it wasn't Palestine, it was a mistake. It was Pennsylvania. We didn't, you know, so <laughs> pe- pe- people won't believe it. You understand? The Russians will say, oh, well, you know, we owe you money. <laughs> it's, you know, It'll it, it, be unbelievable. And people will be astonished and wonder how it was. But those of us who know will just nod our heads knowingly. You see? That's the world we're talking about over here, right? All this leads us to our hero, Shabtai Tzvi, who lived, to be, who lived 50 years, 1626, 1676. Say, he didn't live a long life at all. And uh, the whole story of Shabtai Tzvi took place in the first 40 years of his life. So this is, right? I mean, it's, it's just good to keep in mind we're dealing basically with a young individual. Um, the question which will preoccupy us is not that how he how did he persuade himself. That's not a kash at all. I mean, the world is full of people who walk around saying that they're Mashiach. Rather, how and why did he get universal traction in so short a time? From India to Italy to England, from Yemen to Lithuania, from Morocco to Mezhebush. This really happened, and, and, and very quickly, too, and there was no telegraph at that time. So how did it happen? On all of it, you'll, you'll see, not tonight, but next time, that uh, it spread like wildfire in the, in the course of a year, less than a year. How did that happen in those days? You see, the excitement that swept through the Jew was electric. You understand? Excuse me. How did this happen? For me to be of any service to you here tonight, I can only use the tools of an historian and try to look for context and as I say, try to, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, re-put together the pieces of a puzzle and connect the dots in the correct way. There's nobody knows for sure. Because I'll say it again, there are all kind of memoirs that they lie like crazy, they exaggerate like crazy, the from lie in a from way, the non-from lie in a non-from way, the modern historians, they, I, I, I promise you, you know, the grads just make whole things up, and so does a lot of other people. It just leads, it, it, it's, it's what happens, you understand? Gershon Shalom is supposed to be the big expert, but a friend of mine is a professor in Israel, so oh, they call Gershon Shalom book 
the famous roman in a famous novel. <laughs> you see, so you end up with all these kind of uh, uh, problems. Shabtai Let's go with what we know at least, at least what we think we know. So Shabtai is born in 1626 in Izmir in Turkey, on Tishabov. Whoa. Whoa. What do we know about Tishabov? The Mashiach, my friends, is born in Tishabov. Cool. And there's a long-standing, way before Shabtai there's a long-standing folk tradition that the Mashiach really is going to pop, born in Tishabov, is really going to pop up in Tishabov. Since the time of the Sefer Hamanhig, that's as far back as I can trace it. And that's a reshown back in the 1100s, I think. Uh, the rabbis, because you always have a fight, or you have many fights, between uh, book formal Judaism on the one hand and folk Judaism on the other. You get it? You know the old story, the rabbi says to his wife before Pesach, you don't have to clean this, you don't have to clean that. And she says, well, you have made my whole house comments think about this to you, you know? There's, everybody knows that. So notice there's, there's the folk way of doing Judaism, the other, a, a well-known folk way of doing Tisha B'Av, I don't know if you know this. <laughs> Maybe you do it, for all I know. What this is, that when it comes to uh, 1 o'clock, not only do you get up and, and, and you can sit on a chair, but you sit at the table like you would do for Friday night. Anybody do that? That's good. He says, uh, speaking as representative of book Judaism, because they all condemn this, right? But it's old. It's, it's before Shabtai Tzvi, right? It goes back a thousand years. And it's this idea that hope springs eternal to Ramban when he had his debate with Pablo Cristiani back in 1263 in front of the King of Aragon in Barcelona. One of the things the guy sets up with the Ramban and the Pablo Cristiani, the ex Shiva guy, you know, so you know to learn. And he says, don't you know, you say the Messiah has not yet come, we say the Messiah has come. I have a Medrash Rabba in Echa that says that on the day the temple was born, the Messiah was born. And the cow was lowing and an Arab said, the, the base of was destroyed, and then the Lord again, he says, no, you can hitch your cow back up because the Mashiach is born. I'm sure many of you have heard that. And so there you are. Now the Ramban just goes on to say like this, well, just as he was born, then say he came, you know. Um, but this is an old idea. So the fact that Shabtai Tzvi ha- happened to be born, by the way, like this here, on a Shabbos and a, a, a Tisha B'av, it doesn't get better enough from the Kabbalistic point of view. That's why they call him Shabtai. Huh? <laughs> right? So he born on a Shabbos, and on a t- you, you, you see what I'm saying? So um, uh, he's born in, in, in a very interesting place, uh, Izmir, the port of Smyrna or Izmir in uh, Turkey, which was uh, a new community. It had been founded a few years before his birth. It's a dynamic Jewish community in his time of 6,000 people, which is a lot in the old days. Full of economic activity and rabbinical culture. Basically, the Ottoman Empire... Uh, the Turks aren't good at business. They have subject races like the Jews, the Armenians, and the Greeks who are good at business. They uh, get them to be the bees that produce the honey, and then they squeeze their taxes out of them. The Turkish government, they, you know, they put a, dumped a bunch of Jews in this place, and and, and it was uh, on the Aegean Sea, and it was a good seaport, and um, and it took off. It took off. I don't want to take do too technical over here. All during the 1600s, there was a constant war between the Ottoman Empire and Venice. Uh, it's amazing to think that the little Fashtunkin of Venice was a, was a world power and fought the Turks and held them off for the whole Christian Europe. But they went for a hundred years' war. People don't know it. And uh, in the course of all this, the, the Venetian navy used to blockade a lot of times the Dardanelles and Constantinople. So they needed other ports, so you get it? So Smyrna and Izmir became very successful commercial ports. So it's a big Jewish community by the standard of that time. 
They're all Sephardim. They're all kind of different types of Sephardim. Some of them are BTs, in other words, Moranos who escaped from Portugal and, and ran over here. Uh, others are STs, Sephardi Tahor, meaning they never were BTs. They never uh, uh, pretend to be Catholic or anything like that. They're the, they're the true blue ones that left in 1492. All different types of communities. And you'll be shocked to hear Sephardim are not all from a cookie cutter. So they have several different communities that all fight with each other. Kehillus Aragon, Kehillus Castilla, Kehillus Granada, Valencia, all that kind of business, and Kehillus Portugal. But in the Sephardi tradition, they make it work. Everybody gets together eventually in a Kehillah. Um, and there are seven different uh, communities that united eventually in one. And the father of Shabtai Tzvi is a Jew who, t- who, who locates himself in this new economy. He is the Jew for English merchants, which means that the English do trading with the Ottoman Empire. Why not? And one of the new ports is Izmir. And if you're English, you don't know the Turkish language or all that kind of stuff. And so you can just imagine this. You get off the boat, the first time the English merchant shows up, or the French, or the Italian, or the German, or the Russian, or anybody else, get off the boat. You know, there's two or three types of people that are tugging at your uh, heels. One's uh, a Greek, one's Armenian, one's a Jew. Uh, and what the end of this is how life was lived. And the Greek says, for $50, I can introduce you to all the commercial entrepots and, you know, set you up in business and I can be your interpreter, all the rest of it. The Greek says 50 bucks, the Armenian says 30 bucks, the Jew, Nebuchadnezzar says 10 bucks, but he gets it. So this, this is how it works. And then he gets a client, and these are brokers, and that's how he made a living. That's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's locating yourself in the economy. The equivalent today would be somebody gets a job in the, in the computer business, you know, or, or on the internet. Now, um, so he comes from a not a poor family. When he's born, Shabbat you know, they're a middle class, uh, they're doing okay. The leading rabbi of the city, Rabbi Yosef Eskapa of Salonika, originally the famous Sephardi Goro. Uh, we live in an Ashkenazi-centric kind of culture, uh, you know, Lithuanian-centric, I might even say. Uh, but the Sephardi men, you know, have famous uh, rabbis of their own in, in yesteryear, not only Rabbi Yosef Karo. And uh, Salonika was a very big port in Malcolm Torah, and they sent the rabbis to Smyrna. And so the bottom line is, uh, there's somebody, Choshev, over there. Uh, if this means anything, I doubt it will. Rabbi Yosef Isko is the Talmud Mubbuk of the Mara Sasan. I don't think anybody knows who that is either. So anyway, the, uh, the point is that Shabtai grows up in a city with a Jewish community. There's learning, there's yeshivas, there's schools. He ends up, you know, going to the Cheder and being successful there. He goes to the yeshiva as a teenager of the Rabbi Yosef Iskapa, which is a, uh, you know, like an advanced kind of a place. Uh, yeshiva means they learn every day in shul. They don't have like near Israel campus or something like that. You learn in a Sephardic synagogue. Um, he's an in-towner, <laughs> as we would say today. Okay, uh, which is uh, just interesting because you know the yeshivas have histories of out-of-towners and in-towners. Um, he's also tall, dark, and handsome. All the sources agree. Okay, good-looking guy. He had a lot going for him in that regard. Somewhere in his teens, or probably around the age of 19 or 20, uh, he gets into Kabbalah. So that means here's a guy who's 14, 15, 16, 18 years old, 19 years old, and he's just learning Nigla, you know, Gemara, Postgame, in the Sephardic style, and fine. You know, uh, around the age of 1920, because the Ramosha Cordovero said that everybody, every male anyway, is uh, almost high of course if you don't start learning Kabbalah at the age of 20. The Sephardim had the opposite opinion of Ashkenaz. The Ashkenaz said, don't even touch this stuff till you're 40. The Sephardim don't agree with that at all. And they said, you know, you should, you, you should jump at this when you're 20. 
But anyway, that's what he does. Now, what does it mean, though, in the 1640s? Because he's born in 1626. So if he's 20 or thereabouts, it's the middle 1640s. So what does that mean uh, around there? What's there Kabbalistically? Well, uh, I mean, what books are there? What texts? Um, there's some of the Arizal stuff, which was floating around in stolen manuscripts, if you remember I told you about that last week. Um, the, does that mean that Shabtai Tzvi read them and understood them all? Did he take exams in them? Of course, none of that is true. By the late 1640s, the Zohar is around in published form. 62 years before Shabtai Tzvi was born, the Pope uh, threw a hand grenade into Judaism by authorizing the printing of the Zohar at the very moment that he was burning every copy of the Talmud. I think many of you were here a couple years ago when we did a series in the summer on the war against the Jewish book. He burned all the the same Pope that Mamza Paul IV, who went after every um, Gemara and uh, Rambam and things like this and burned them all. Burned them all. You, today it's extremely rare to find an old printed book, you know, from from way back when. Uh, for that time, the same Pope gave per, uh, 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 who hated the Jews. He gave perfect permission in Mantua in uh, 1558 and in uh, Cremona following year later to publish the Zohar, which made it a published book, which is very rare in the Jewish world. And even though, if you look at it, I mean, you know, the, the, the writing doesn't look that great to us. Compared to manuscripts, it's, it's night and day, right? It's, having to read somebody's handwriting, it's night and day. And so uh, Shabtai Tzvi can read and does read the uh, Zohar. Uh, the nefarious plot of the Pope was quite successful, the Zohar was not only out of the closet, it was ubiquitous and readable. You understand, the Jews historically never wanted to print the Zohar or have that out for the public. Those who need to know will make it their business to know it. It's not, it better not, you know, it's not for everybody. Not everything has to go on YouTube, like we say today, you understand? Not everything has to be out there. But the Pope said that it should be. He, he meant to uh, disintegrate Judaism by doing that. By the 1640s, young Sephardic scholars like Shabtai Tzvi could access it and master it if you throw yourself into it, and he did. No question about it. As well as the other Kabbalah books that had been composed earlier but were now being printed, such as the works of uh, Moshe Cordovero. Um, he, he's a name I mentioned last week who was in Sfat in the 1500s. He had the uh, very interesting situation that even though he lived in Turkish Palestine, where in the Turkish Empire there's no printing press, he had some kind of a connection with Venice. And Venice was a very big millionaire who was also a famous rabbinic scholar, Menachem Azaria Defano. Menachem was there from the town of Fano, who the yeshiva world called Ramamipano. And, uh, and he, uh, on his own pocket, uh, published all the books of the Ramak. That's the, how they got out there. So uh, for the first time ever, if you're living in the late 15th and 1600s, the Kabbalah is actually accessible if you want. Before, it wasn't even out there. It was very hard to get a hold of it. So um, it's a new world. According to what we're told, though, Shabtai Tzvi does not spend much time on the recent Kabbalistic literature. He kind of ignores the writings of the uh, Ari. He kind of ignores the writings of the Moshe Cordovero. Instead, concentrates on uh, two books, the Zohar itself and something called the Sefer Akonah, which I don't think anybody's even heard of. Right? It's an old uh, text, and w w which, by the way, criticizes Gemara learning. <laughs> okay? And it's very interesting. And... Um, what I want to get across is that here's a guy who obviously is very self-confident and he plunges and study Kabbalah himself without a Rebbe. Usually in the Kabbalistic tradition as master to disciple. The Mishnah, by the way, thousands of years old, speaks of such terms. Right? That one should teach one and one should teach two, never more than two, and so forth. 
to do it yourself. How do you know you're getting it right? But if somebody is very self-confident, uh, or they have a Yetzirah, however you want to uh, do it, so they'll do it. And that's, uh, and that's what he does. But to be a Kabbalist, listen closely on what I'm about to say. To be a Kabbalist, it takes a lot more than just being an expert in Kabbalistic literature. Right? Somebody who knows what the books say doesn't make you a Makobo. It makes you a scholar of Kabbalistic literature. Right? Which is not the same thing as Makobo. And um, a lot of it has to do with actual practice. Shabtai Tzvi gets into pietistic Kabbalistic practices which are not unique to the Kabbalah but were a big feature of it. I'm speaking especially of the ascetism in fasts, immersions, and sigufim. Here's the Sefer Hasidim, which is not a Kabbalistic book, written at the time of the Rambam, Rabbi Huda Chassid in Germany. This is a Hasidic Ashkenaz. I'm talking about, obviously, the modern Hasidim, I'm talking about the old, old days, in the 1100s, early 1200s. And uh, again, it's a contemporary Rambam. It's very different than the Rambam. And one of the things that's famous for the, for the pietistic approach is the emphasis on, um, shall we say, teshuva. Not teshuva, but teshuva. And by that, of course, I mean not repentance, but penance. Because teshuva is an English word, a Hebrew word, that could be translated in a number of different ways, and they're not identical. Repentance, of course, is, is inside. I did something wrong. I feel bad about it. I really do. And I, so I'm not going to do it again. In the old-fashioned language, it's charata alavar kabbalah said. You know, you, you, you feel bad. You see, let's say I insulted you, and then afterwards I said, what did I do? You know, so first you apologize, and you really mean it, and then, and then they move on, so to speak, you know. In other words, that's, that's, what, to repent, that's what teshuva con, consists of. Baloney. In the Middle Ages, they're going to say like this. You think you're getting off with that? <laughs> first, I want you to flagellate yourself. You hit yourself 500 times. Then I want you to, to, to take a couple of baths in ice-cold uh, river. Okay? Then if you did something really bad, I want you to cover your face with honey and get stung by bees. Shall I go on? You know, there's all kinds of things of this uh, type. And these are Jewish. The whole books are written about this. And it's not Talmudic, by the way. Okay? It's not in the Gemara, uh, which is interesting. And that's why the Rambam has none of this, because the Rambam in Hilchos Teshuva quotes entirely out of the Talmud, and the Talmud has none of this. The Talmud only has repentance done their penance. But in the Middle Ages, they certainly had it. In the Kabbalistic times, they definitely had it. And Chaim Vital and others write about this, and that's a basic feature of the life of Shabtai Tzvi. His entire life, he fasted a lot. He did millions of times in the mikvah, or in the ocean, in the sea. Um, he subjected himself to mortification of the flesh. So this is not a televangelist who behind the scenes is pressing and, you know, and, and, and making fun of the credulity of the believers. I mean, he did model this kind of behavior. I'll say it again. He wasn't living high in the hog at all. He lived a very, uh, you know, uh, pietistic lifestyle full of self-tortures, we say today, which would be strange to us. They're not strange to the historian who's familiar with the pre-modern world, pre-modern Jewish world. This is very common. It was the Baal Shem Tov who sort of like did away with this hundred years later, but the time I'm talking about, this was very, this was very popular and, and very satisfying. Um, and so he, let's get this straight, Shabtai Tzvi throughout his career is a guy who fasts a lot. They talk about him going from Shabbos to Shabbos without eating. And, you know, I don't know how to do that, but, but they did it. Now, we know cases where people tried to do it and died, but we also know cases where people tried to do it and didn't do it. 
So it's uh, you know you're, you're talking about a, a will and you know control of yourself and things like that. Um, he flagellates a lot in an attempt to crush the Gashmian sentiment to earn revelation, because if it's done in the context of uh, Kabbalah, it's not simply about getting rid of your sins. It's removing the impediment that any kind of materiality and maybe sin has to attaining higher enlightenment, or let's get or let's be very frank, to getting prophecy. <laughs> let's cut the baloney to getting messages from upstairs. And that's what it's all about. The thing that's blocked, anybody can do it, but you have to have the will. You can do it, I can do it, but we're fat, lazy Americans, yeah, we can't do it without our hamburger, yeah, so it'll never happen. These ways, they say like this, throw all that over the, the, the side, and you know, life consists of a journey to, to, to prophecy. So, he's not the only one that did it, but I'm trying to give you an idea of who he is. Uh, on the other hand, he's not a, he, he may not be a phony, but he's not a regular Joe either. You could interpret his irregularity, is, is, is what I'm talking about. He's not a regular person, positively. And many young B'nai Torah do. And they gathered him as disciples. One of the ways he always attracted a following wherever he went was by modeling a real lifestyle. They said, look at this guy. The guy does not eat. He can sit for hours and say, tell him or learn this or that and the other. We're watching him. You know what I mean? He's in the base matters all day long. The guy doesn't eat breakfast, doesn't eat lunch, he doesn't eat supper, and he's, like I said before, he's done it with a cell phone, you know, so he, he's really doing this kind of stuff. So you could say positively, they learn together Nigla and Nister, you know, Talmud is, or, or Kabbalistic, all, all kinds of different matters. They mo- follow his model, and they get into fasting and toiling a lot, especially, he didn't like going to Mikvah, he liked to go to the, the ocean or the, the Aegean Sea, because it's a seaport, you know, it's a beautiful coastline. Used to go there a whole lot. You see how this thing is, is, is forming. But you could also interpret his irregularity negatively or bizarrely. For example, he gets married at the age of 21, but within a very short time the girl asks for a get because he never even attempted to consummate the marriage. He gets married a little bit later, exact same thing. He gets divorced in a, in a very short time. Uh, this leads to all kinds of speculations. You see? No, but, no, but it's true. By the way, long before Sigmund Freud was born, Yaakov Emden has a book called Sefer Torah Hakanos, where he exactly gives a Freudian interpretation of Shantai Tzvi. Um, not to, but that's a little reductionist. I'm not, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not um, throwing it aside because I think it's a key element of who he was. But nevertheless, um, it's not all due to that sort of thing. Not to get too Freudian, we're told Shantai Tzvi had an accident of some kind when he was young, um, this is what his own followers write. When he was young, he had an accident which caused significant medical, medical damage to a sensitive portions of his anatomy. And this could explain his strange subsequent behavior. But as I said before, it's a little bit too reductionist. But there's no question there's something connected with, with, with all that. Because of his... Don't throw that away, because that's going to be a, a, a part of his career. Because of his piety, scholarship, good looks, and personal charisma, young yeshiva and kolel types form a circle around him. A chevra. So imagine a bunch of guys get together in the town, the city of Izmir in a shul by themselves every day. Sometimes they learn together in good weather in a forest outside of town. Sometimes on the pretty seashore away from everybody else. This is a cult. <laughs> Do you see it? They always get together. It's the same guys. Nobody else. They go to. They they learn, but it's always out 
you know, in the forest away from everybody else. It's always doing their own thing. This is the beginning of a cult. I mean, why are you different? Why are you separate from everybody else? Either you're weird, which you'll never admit, or it's because everyone else is inferior to you in some way. It was clear that in a community like Izmir, which was a significant Mokum Torah, a group like this could not say, only we know how to learn Gemara, Rashi and Tosis. This wasn't true. Shabtai Tzvi knew how to learn, but he wasn't what you call a first-rank rabbinical scholar. You don't have to be. Second rank is also good. But the rabbis and people, there are guys in yeshivas and kolos who could learn better than him. So people aren't going to be attracted to this guy because that's going to be the most advanced, you know, like they went to Rakhine Brisker or something like that. So if they're not doing that, then it's got to be that they have something special, not in the Gemara Nigla area, but in another area. Now, Izmir was not Tzfat. You could make the argument that everyone else in town was inferior in Kabbalah, both in intellectual comprehension of the meaning of the texts and fulfilling the ascetic regimen that I've described, without which one cannot attain, gain higher understanding of Kabbalah. Like I said before, if you're not willing to throw away the hamburger and fast all week, week after week, and do this and do this and stay up at night and, you know, and, and go to mikvah all the time and that sort of thing, you're not going to merit it. As soon as you're talking about a group that keeps to itself and keeps itself superior in metaphysics to everybody else, it's a cult. Okay? It's a cult. In a cult, the leader is El Supremo. Agreed? That's the point of a cult. The leader is Mr. Perfect. In a Kabbalistic cult, we call that the Mashiach. Right? Steinzalz once said something that, that caught my attention. And he said, if you go to insane asylums, not houses, in uh, Christian countries and in Israel, you see one big difference because they have the same uh, kind of phenomena. But he says, in America, you go to asylum, everybody says, I guess, I'm God. You know, you go in Baltimore, your people say, I'm God. You go in Israel, a Jew, by definition, is culturally you know, brainwashed. Nobody says, I'm God. But they're all the Mashiach. Which is an interesting insight. And so if you're El Magnifico and you know more than anybody else, then the people around you are, you know, beyond veneration. And this is what's expected. And by the way, it was inevitable that there's going to be a cult when the leader is not married. He didn't have a wife to say, take out the trash. <laughs> right? If he, would have, if, he would, if he would have been married, take it from me. <laughs> he, he wouldn't have had delusions of grandeur. Now, uh, now it's important to remember, I see some nervous laughs out there. Now, it's important to remember, Shabtai Tzvi was not an insubstantial guy. He knew a lot, as I said before, and in another life he would have made, an, another life, he would have made a great Magid, right? Or a Hasidic Rebbe, a Marad Agarata. He knew these, uh, we, we have recorded uh, sermons and speeches, things he gave. He's very imaginative. He knows how to take psukim or passages in the Talmud or the Zohar and weave it this way or that way. He knows how to take psukim in the Bible, do gematrias, all that sort of thing. The area of what they call the Magid. You understand? This is a, there's a thing called the rabbi, and his job is to you know, deal with the boring legalities, so we call it the Gemara and the Postkim, and things like that. And then there's a guy supposed to give the speeches and bring it to the world of the Agarita. Somebody said, there's no question, had things been different, he would have been a successful and famous 
Magav is type. So he was talented in that in, in that area. On the other hand, uh, I think there's no question he clearly seems to have been, uh, I mean, seriously bipolar, with tremendous swings between manic behavior and debilitating depression, which he interpreted as divinely sent feelings. That is, is true to the end of his life. And his own followers, along with everybody else, write about this constantly. They just don't call it with the 20th century secular terminology like uh, manic depressive. But uh, they say he had his high moods and his dark moods. There are times when the klipos and the demons are pursuing him and he just retreats totally himself and he's inaccessible. And then there are other times when he's on fire, they write, and he would sing songs and do crazy things, but also amid the crazy things would have brilliant insights and then he would say, it's feeling his face was on fire. Everybody writes about the fact that when he would sing a, a, a tell him, his face is on fire, you can't look at him, it's amazing. And then, in, and then in between, you get the, the, the normal. And when in the normal, they say, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't, I didn't even know I did that. And I, you know, listen, I'm not, look, manic depression is not funny. Okay? I mean, chas v'shalom and all that. It's not funny. Uh, but it's true. You know, they don't remember. You know, they're, 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 they're responsible. And so, uh, in the 16th or 17th century, better yet, they don't talk about bipolar. Right? They talk about different categories of analysis of the problem. And especially if somebody's into Kabbalah and a world of the metaphysics, which is inhabited by good forces and bad forces of one kind or another. So the uh, dark times... Are, but seriously, these issues which his people talk about and others talk about, these high moments, these very dark moments. By the way, sometimes he's been depressed for a month, right? And sometimes they get him a mocha called heora, when he's lit up, you know, so he gets illumination. And sometimes they're normal. And when he was normal, by the way, he was very charming and charismatic. He's a gentleman, a diplomat, an impressive type individual. And then there are the other times. Um, these are not just divinely sent, as he sees it, and his followers eventually. The terrible waves of depression which recurred for the rest of his life were interpreted by himself and later by his followers as attacks and tortures by the dark forces to prevent him from reaching ever higher levels of comprehension of God and thereby bringing about the final redemption and the death of death. See, he's reached, as he sees it, he's doing such amazing things that eventually he's going to bring about the tikkun of the world. And one of the things that's going to happen is, also, Kaddish Baruch HaVashachat is Malchamavas. And all evil will disappear. And evil doesn't want to disappear. And so they're fighting to prevent it. I mean, that's their job. They're fighting to prevent this. And the way they're doing it is by attacking the mind, literally playing mind game with this poor fellow. Now, either, either that's true or it's not. <laughs> but if it is true, it's, it's quite a cosmic statement. Now, um, on the 21st of Sivan in 1648, that's the summer, right? Just finished Sivan not long ago. Shuvah's time. At the age of 22, in a manic mood, in Izmir, in Turkey, he's not married, he gets a dream that he's a Mashiach. I think it's a culmination of everything we've been talking about. Yeah, because this, this is a person who in some respects has to be pitied. I mean, let's put it this way, had a lot of pain in life. And like I say before, I think we all know people and this and the other struggle with these issues. It is not funny at all. And didn't have any medicine in those days either. So it was not funny at all. And uh, uh, the culmination of all this, and, and in between he's learning Zohar, and he's learning Sefer Kana. 
He gets messy, he's a Mashiach. And as I said, I think it's a culmination of all that's going on. On the other hand, this is exactly the middle of the month of Sivan in 1648. is exactly when news hits Turkey of the Cossack massacres going in at that time and the arrival of the first wave of Jewish slaves. 1648, as you know, is Gzeris Tachbatat. Here's where, look, right here is Izmir, where Shabtai Tzvi is living. Here, not that far away, is where Chmelnitsky is killing everybody. Uh, as you can see, this area is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where the Ukrainians are going wild and shechting and torturing all the Jews. Over here is the continent of Crimea. These are the Muslims. At that time, were allies with Chmelnitsky uh, to fight the Poles. Again, uh, the, the Chmelnitsky's a great accomplishment was to forge an alliance between the Ukrainians and the Muslims on the one hand against the Catholic Poles. Um, and if you're Jewish at that time, if you fall in the hands of the Ukrainians, they literally slice you to bits. And if you fall in the hands of the Muslims, if you're old and decrepit, they kill you right away. But if you're not, and you have any kind of value whatsoever in the slave market, then you're okay, because what they're going to do is take you over here and send you here, and then take you down to here and sell you in the slave markets of the Ottoman Empire which is good for them because there you have Jewish communities. And um, eventually the Jewish communities get over-swamped with slaves. They can't, they can't afford to buy everybody out. But in the beginning they could. And uh, this, is, this is life in 1648 to 1652, if you're a Sephardi. You get it? Um, every community, I've talked about this before, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Every Jewish community in history in the old days had a pig and shivuing committee because that's what life is. That's what life is. And, you know, if Berlin doesn't handle the shooting from Poland, Poland won't handle the shooting from Berlin, so to speak. So everybody's got to have a patient. But on the other hand, funds are limited in any kahili. You raise so and so much money from taxes. You, you can't spend endless money on it. So there's a budgeting process of a kahila in which there's an executive board everywhere in the world. And the executive board, for arguments, let's say they're taking 100,000 ducats as, 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 as Jewish taxes here. Well, 50, 60... Let's say 50,000 goes to the king. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. You take off the taxes off the top. From the other 50, you spend all the money for the Jewish community. It's a, a lot of needs in the Jewish community, right? Uh, the shoals, uh, the Chavar Kedisha, uh, the Kashras, uh, you know, all kind of things like that. Uh, they didn't spend money on Chinuch, but everything else they spend money on. And uh, the Arab, you know, all, and, 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 and the local anti-Semitism to deal with that. So you have 50,000, it doesn't go that far. How much can you, can you, can you put aside for a pity in The answer is, I'm just making this up, let's say 10,000 ducats. Okay, 10,000 ducats goes as far as it goes. And, here, and typically speaking, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea is full of pirates all the time for hundreds and hundreds of years, and pirates capture ships, and among the people they capture are Jews, and the pirates will dump the Jews at the next port, and there'll be usually a Jewish community at that port, and Jewish community has at 10,000 to spend on, uh, you know, ransoming off captives, which means, by the way, that they find themselves in that Sophie's Choice type situation, which you have to decide who you're going to spend the money on, correct? And, you know, you have young people, you have old people, you have this, that, and the other. The uh, Talmud has a pecking order of who goes first, but, you know, that doesn't mean they always listen to it. And uh, if you're Shabtai Tzvi, this is the hot news that's going throughout the Sephardic communities in the summer of 1648. And we know that the year Tach, Tavches, was one of those messianic years that people have been talking about forever. I mentioned the last two classes that I gave, last two lectures over here. Everybody took a guess when the Mashiach is coming. And a lot of it has to do with gematrias. 
Katsti b'chayayim ebnei benos ches. Ches is is tough ches, right? Is is uh, you know uh, what do you call it? 1648 backwards and various other combinations. Zos is also uh, you know tough ches, isn't it? Okay. B'shnas hayovel hazos toshu v'yishal el makomo. You know people dash in all the ways that they did, and so many Jews around the world, especially in uh, I mean anywhere in the world thought 1648 is going to see the coming Mashiach. And instead came the Holocaust. So, you know, that blew that one away, or maybe it didn't. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe, especially if you're living in 1648, maybe it's the beginning of the Messianic process. It's what's called the Hevli Mashiach, the Ekvesen Mashiach, which we're told will be very bloody. We talked about that before, right? It's go, 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 go. Oh, then it fits like a package. Done it. In 1648, Mashiach comes, and all of a sudden, 100,000 Jews get shechted in, in, in the Ukraine. Oh, it's, it's Mashiach time. I'm simply trying to show you, don't be surprised as a guy who has dreams and bipolar and this and that and the other, is, is learning the Zohar all the time, and is thinking about himself as the head of a cult, might say like this, it's Takedekim and Mashiach. The Ikvus, the Hevli Mashiach will be in Poland, and the appearance of the Messiah, Izmir. Could be, could be. So, I know this is very strange from the way we think it's the audience in Baltimore in, in what, July of uh, 2015. We live in a different world with different glasses. But your job, whenever I give a talk here, is to take off the glasses and put on a separate set of glasses, try to understand how people saw it at that time. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, um, look, uh, dear Smelnitsky, let's go to the next one. Here's how people imagine Shabtai Tzvi. Right? He's, he, he's a Jewish Smelnitsky. Riding on a horse, and he'll lead the Jewish armies. The Messi, he's a Mashiach. He's going to be on, uh, you know, he'll lead the Jews out of the liberation. Oh boy, I'm sure they say like this. He's going to gather the Jews. He's going to go to Ukraine, kill all the Cossacks, kill all the Tatars. Then it's the turn of the Pope, <laughs> and then we go down the line. That's how they imagine it. You see, now um, nothing really happened out of all this, because at the end of the day, this is a dream a single individual guy had, and the story of Shabtai is not in 1648 but 18 years later. But it's a foreshadowing of the fact that in his mind, at least, these waves are surging, and they kind of make sense if you buy into certain axioms. That's the problem. Uh, but he does start to do, in his manic moods, certain very weird things. One of them is, he goes to Shul, and uh, remember, he's a Talmud Chacham, you know, he has a place in Shul and all the rest of it, and you start pronouncing the name of God, the UK Vavke. Oh, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, really? The Gemara says, in a time of Mashiach, then they'll be able to do it. Well, guess what? <laughs> I can do it. You understand? You know, to the, we don't usually pronounce Yod and the and the Vavke. And, and, and uh, but it, it, the Gemara says over there in that passage, in the Mashiach time, that'll be different. So, now, that's it. Now, the rabbi of the community and the others rebuke him. And they say, what are you doing? I mean, you can just imagine a scandal, something like this makes. But by this time, they see it as a bipolar thing. And he's into one of his spasms. And if a Nebuch person would wander into one of our shuls and do the same thing, especially if the person was a learned rabbi who had problems, it's more of a Nebuch than anything else. You wouldn't go in and shoot him. I mean, I've known in my time, and some of you have also, people who were serious scholars, and had, you know, uh, different psychological and other issues. And, uh, you know, if they ever did anything weird, you know, people, you know, if you, 
you, you ignore it to some degree if possible. To complicate matters, when he wasn't manic or depressive, he was normal. At such times, he honestly could not explain what made him do the weird things. So they said to him, Were you, what did you yesterday, on Friday night, you came to the show and you said, name Hashem. He said, I don't know why he did it. And he didn't. It was the truth. This demonstrated to people he really was normal, but had spells, unfortunately, which made him do crazy things, for which the guy cannot be held responsible, because that's the way it goes. We don't hold people today responsible for things they do when they're in certain psychological states. It's sad more than anything else. Um, but his small group of disciples interpret it his way and not the bipolar way. They don't say we're following a guy with serious issues. This is the 17th century. They see him as a superior Kabbalist, sadly under attack by demonic forces trying to prevent him from an Aliyah Ruchani, which is known in the Bible. What does it say about King Saul? Right? He exhibited these these tendencies, but the Torah says specifically it wasn't that he was cracking up, that this is part of the punishment of Saul after he failed to wipe out a Moloch. So, uh, did he crack up? Yes, he cracked up. That was the punishment, meaning it wasn't what we call clinical or something like this. That he, this was sent divinely. So that's already a high madrega, so to speak. <laughs> and he's another King Saul. And uh, consequently, when a year later, in 1650 or so, Shabtai goes toggling in the ocean or the sea, as he did all the time, not to mikvah, and he almost drowns because he got caught in an undertow. His escape is to his group accorded cosmic significance, and his followers make it a Purim, the 16th of Kislev, right? Tesai and Kislev, which is Shabbatin, that's like, like one of the most foremost holidays. And by the way, it's preceded by a tiny sester. <laughs> I mean, that was the day before when the 15th of Kislev, you have to fast. They model it all these, because that's, the, let me put it this way. You say that was a dumb swimming accident. No. It wasn't a dumb swimming accident. They were out to get him. And miraculously, he was saved. You get it? The dark forces, the Sitra Akra, was out to get him, but it was saved. And so it's how you interpret the phenomenon. Um, the thing is, if he would have been a loner, a guy by himself, the community would simply have tolerated him as a nebuch, a nut, particularly if his family was well-to-do and well-connected, which they were. The problem is he was not a loner. He had disciples. This gave things a different aspect. It made it a cut. A sect, or a cult as we would call it today, this threatened the Izmir community as it was attracting regular people and was ruining them. So people, I'm sure, came to the rabbi and said, I guess, you got to do something. My son now joined this group. My son is 15, 16, or 14, or something like this. And, he, and, and I can't talk to him. And, you know, he doesn't listen to us. As happens with a cult, right? And uh, Rabbi Iskafa, Rabbi Rabbi Lapapa, Rabbi Chaim Ben Veniste, you know, we'll, we'll do something over here. Now, um, all this is as I say, profoundly the situation. In one of his moods, he tells his followers, he's going to make the sun stand still like Joshua. He goes to the hills outside of town, and he pronounces, Shemesh begivondom ferech bayalom. Okay? Sun should stand still. Of course, nothing happens. But that's the breaking point for the rabbis of the city. And they summon him, and they threaten him. They say, if you keep this up, we'll put you in cherem. They got him in a manic mood. And so he says, you put me in cherem, I'll put you in cherem. Katoni avim mimosni avicha. My, like, like Rechavim said to the Jewish people, my little finger, meaning, my little finger is fatter than your waist. I'm smarter than all of you put together, and I put you in cherem. This is not America, where the young can get away with any kind of chutzpah you want. And everybody says, isn't that cute? 
This is the old school. In the old school, if you go and curse and threaten the, the rabbis of the city, you're out of there. And so, uh, let's put it this way. <laughs> the chief rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yosef Iskava, he's the Rosh Yosef from the tour, uh, was a smart cookie. And he can see, as they say in the Talmud about the Ben Sora Mur, Nidna Shem Sofa, he said, this is, going, this is going bad. This guy's going to be a lot of trouble. And it's not a solvable problem. And so he wants to get him bumped off. That's how they handled matters in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. Okay? That's what they do. Uh, but in the, well, in, in the end, it would have been a better idea. You see? Now, um, in the end, they don't. He gets simply kicked out of town. But like in contemporary abuse cases nowadays, what's the number one problem? They throw the guy out of town, but they what? They don't tell anybody else in the other town what the problem is. Right? He's fired from being a Rebbe here, but he ends up over there. He's fired from being a Shaykhid here. Right? He's fired from being a Shaykhid here, and he ends up, he ends up something, oh, I can tell you, to, he, he ends up being a Shaykhid somewhere else. So, he's out of town, but they don't tell. So the other communities don't know. Plus the Shans, Plus shows, nothing changes. So off he goes to Salonika, which is not that far away. Here is Izmir, Smyrna. And here's Salonika. So you see it's just across the Aegean, I guess it is. And, uh, you know, these are the leading Jewish communities of the Sephardim in uh, Turkey. This is the 1600s when the Sephardic culture, very strong, the rabbinic culture, very strong. Salonika, I mean, I don't know, to, to, to use Ashkenazi, think of like Vilna or something like that. You know what I mean? There's a Ir Yisrael with many uh, schools and academies and great uh, you know, learning and all that sort of thing. So he goes off to Salonika. The uh, community has to go off by himself. <laughs> All the parents take their kids and say, you're not going. And for a while, when he lands in Salonika, he's in a normal mood. At such times, he's charming and charismatic. He attracts a new set of disciples. But, and after all, I mean, they're impressed. He doesn't eat. He goes to mikvah. He fasts a lot. He learns it, you know, 24 hours at a time, 36 hours at a time. But then the mania eventually kicks in. And he starts doing the Shema uh, Farsh again, you know, pronouncing God's name and all the rest of it. And to top it off, he invites, invites a bunch of rabbis, because Salonika was a city full of famous rabbis, uh, to a meal in which he has a, a ceremony in which he marries a Sefer Torah. Okay? And as he brings out a Sefer Torah there, and he actually you know, puts a ring on, he says, all right, Mekodeshis, and all this kind of stuff. He's in manic mood. You know? I don't know why people look at me with a crinkled face. I mean, you know, this is what people can do. And... Uh, uh, by the way, as soon as the rabbi Salonika see that, they say, you are hitting the road, baby, this time, you know? This is, we got no time for this, you know? Uh, and so out of Salonika he goes, but once again, they don't tell. He says, why tell, you know? And so he goes to Constantinople, okay? Uh, but in Constantinople, same thing. He starts saying the shame of Furish. Here he does a new shtick. He, he, he goes to the market, he buys a big fish, he wraps it up in baby clothes, he puts it in the crib, he walks in the street, pushing a carriage, and singing Spanish lullabies to it. Okay? Now, for believers, of course, they means like this. It's Mazel Dugan. It's the Zodiac. It's Pisces. It means the Geul is going to come in, the, you know, in February, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. What does it mean to everybody else? Cuckoo. Okay? <laughs> you see? And now, so it's very strange. So here, I'm trying to show you what a complex individual this is, and yet, you know, how do people, you know, kind of react to it? He celebrates the Shalosh Regalim all in a week. Notice, tonight he sits in the sukkah, and the tomorrow morning he benches a lulav. The following night is a seder. 
The next night he does Tikkun uh, Shavuos. Is, these are just weirdisms. Now you see, the Jewish community is used to apostasy. The Jewish community is dealing with heresy. The Jewish community is dealing with renegades, malshinim, <laughs> thieves, whores, bandits. That kind of stuff is the good old, you know, that's the way it goes. Like the Rambam says, you'll never get rid of that kind of stuff. This is different. Agree? This is different. Would you, what I just re- said, would you regard that as heretical? It's cuckoo. You see? And yes, but what do you do? Um, he celebrates the Shoshagam. He has a vision that tells him to do sins and recite a new bracha. Right? You know, we say in the morning, Matir Asurim, which literally, many people, by the way, get this wrong. Matir Asurim means he frees those who are imprisoned. Or if you wish, he loosens the bonds. Right? Asur in Hebrew means, literally means tied up. So Matir means to untie. But he said, no, he's through the Matir Isurim. You know, he permits that which is forbidden. Okay? And again, it's, it's like weird. Okay? To go eat on a, on a fast day or something like that, or eat something, trafe. I don't think he actually ate trafe, as I recall. Um, later on, the Sabatians did, but I don't think he did that. But he, you know, ate at weird times, like on a fast day or something like that. Or maybe like Chametz on Pesach, and he'll say, you know, you make a bracha matir isurim. What do you do with this? Here, now, this is Constantinople. This is the capital of the Turkish Empire. The Turks are tough, and so the rabbinical courts are tough. So if he goes in the street and starts eating this and making a bracha like that and saying God's name, he's flogged. Okay, they still had basins at that time. He gets malchus, as they call it here. He's kicked out of town, but again, without warning anybody else. Isn't that amazing? So it's an old attitude that uh, didn't start today. Uh, he travels around Greece, because that's the area over there of the map. I mean, he was in uh, Izmir, and then he went to Salonika, and he went to Constantinople, and now they threw him out of here. His family was around originally from the area of Greece, and the uh, Morea, as they call it. So, you know, he goes there for uh, quite a while, running from place to place. Uh, and so you'd be in a town, and he, this guy comes for Shabbos, and nobody knows what to do with him, you know, in the sense that he's going to eat. He does eat on Shabbos because the Kabbalist does not fast on Shabbos. You eat four meals, right? Shalashudas and also the, the Lamaka. But then you don't eat. And you, uh, as they say, stay up for a whole time without, without sleeping and learning. And you uh, go uh, for, over and over and over again to the river for the mikvah, and you do this, and you do that. But then, a few days later, he's gone. So it just gives you something to talk about. After all, there wasn't any TV in those days, or books or anything. Um, eventually, he goes to Israel. Eretz Israel. But not directly. He goes to the sea route. I want to remind you, there was a constant war going on at that time throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Crete was the main theater of operations. The Republic of Venice held Crete. The Ottomans were sending army after army to conquer Crete. The Venetians were sinking the navy. The Ottomans were sinking the counter navy. So, if you want to go to uh, to Egypt, it's not Pushit. and so he has to go in a, like a very roundabout way. But rather than go directly to Israel, go first to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, um, he gets to Alexandria. And in Alexandria, it so happens to be that at the time he landed, he was a normal, because these people can't control. And so he was a normal for a while. And he's, uh, as I say, he's learned, he's charming, he's astute, he's charismatic, charismatic, and he makes a chassid from the one guy that counts in Egypt, which is El Supremo. Rafal Yosef, he's the Chalebi, or the Nagid, as they used to call it. If you know how Egypt worked, uh, from way back when, in the early Middle Ages, uh, after all, Egypt is the headquarters of the pharaohs, ancient time, they like top-down government, correct? Centralized, top-down government. 
And so the Jews were expected to have a similar pattern. And so the king or the ruler would appoint the head Jew, and that guy controls it. He's the dictator for all the other Jews. And at the time, excuse me, the time we're talking about, it was Rafal Yosef, who was a Syrian Jew, who was a very firm guy, and is a renowned Balsadoka. And he himself was a Lurianic Kabbalist who used to fast a lot. He was a multimillionaire. And his family, they say, ate uh, wonderfully. He never ate. And uh, he had 50 rabbis every day at the table, and he supported yeshivas. And, you know, he's a very uh, interesting individual. And he didn't oppress the Jewish community, at least more than necessary, uh, I mean, in terms of the taxes. And so here's a person, and he was, by the way, in charge of the, he was like the secretary of the treasury of the governor of Egypt. So it's a high position. See, he's, he's the Jew that counts, and he thinks this guy that landed off the boat is great. You understand? He thinks he's great. And so, um, here, Shabtai Tzvi, as long as he's there, he lives the life of Riley. Um, I'm just giving an idea. I mean, we don't know enough about this. It's fascinating. Who else was, was, was at his table being supported at that time? The son of Chaim Vital, or Shmuel Vital, who has the manuscripts that they won't let anybody publish. <laughs> it's, I mean, if you want to do a novel, here it is. Two guys at the table. One guy is making up his own cover. The other guy has the original stuff, but he won't let anybody see it. And then there's the rich guy, who's a Lurian Kabbalist, but it's too firm of a guy to go and steal or take anything from anybody. It's the stuff of, uh, of, of movies. Uh, apparently, they regard his Mishigasin as spiritual happenings. I mean, he does end up doing some crazy things over there, but it all depends how you look at it. Since they regard him as a positive individual, if he says the Shema Mephorosh, must be some Kabbalistic reason, you know. Because I see he's not just, he's not a Mechal Shabbos. You know, he's not a lowlife. He doesn't go eat trave. He doesn't do this. He doesn't chase women. He doesn't do, you know, all the sorts of things that sinners typically do. So then this, the Mishagas is a, is a Kabbalistic Mishagas. And then it's, it's, it's Mashahum Yuchad. It singles him out as somebody special. Okay. After a couple months, he moves to Yerushalayim. 36 years old, 1642. He's still not married. He's in a normal mood when he reaches Jerusalem. That's always his mazel, <laughs> right? When he shows in Yerushalayim, he's in a normal mood. This was, in 1662, a very interesting period in the history of Israel, of Jerusalem. It's the era of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, if that name means anything. But I guess it doesn't. Uh, who was a kind of a Torah Zionist, you might say. Uh, this is in the 17th century. Rabbi Yaakov is a, is a Moroccan rabbi, Sephardic. He's a big Talmud Chacham. And he has a plan to uh, try to revive a Jewish settlement in Israel by building super yeshiva. And then attracting a lot of people in there, and then they'll attract others. They'll attract others. And he goes to Livorno, to Leghorn, in Italy. That's over here, which was the rich Sephardic community in Italy. That's where he had the millionaires. And he gets the Reichmans of Leghorn, the Vega family, to bankroll big money to set up a uh, nice-sized yeshiva with a good endowment in Jerusalem. And he moves there in 1658. And it's actually a very interesting period in the history of, of um, let me put it this way, this is when the modern Aliyah begins for the Sephardim, not the Ashkenaz, for the Sephardim. And he builds up something impressive over there. Uh, his students include, the, you know, the Prichada, Shemesh, a lot, a, lot, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of very big people and all the rest of it. This person very big in, in uh, Gomorrah. He's a very uh, famous posek. Uh, if you're in the rabbi business, if you're in the rabbi business, You'll know Yaakov Chagiz, he's the one who says he can drink water on, on Yom Kippur. He's a Shalosan too, with Halachas Ketanas. Uh, so that's why rabbis, if they find in a situation where somebody medically is required to drink, they'll some drink water. 
at least according to the 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 Yaakov gives, it's, it's it's not a violation. You understand? Um, so he, you know, he's, what I'm trying to say is, it's a serious posek. And now this guy shows up, who obviously stood in good with the rich guy in Egypt. They haven't heard that he was kicked out of Izmir, or out of Salonika, or out of Constantinople. They never heard he walked a fish down the road singing lullabies. You understand? They didn't see all this sort of thing. And he is, for a fair while that he's there, in the normal phase. So he joins the yeshiva, and they welcoming, they want people from scholars over the place to move to Israel to build up the population. He learns with others a chavrusa. He begins to attract, as always, some disciples who want to learn Kabbalah with him, because the yeshiva is not a Kabbalistic yeshiva, it's a regular yeshiva. Here he resumed his former ascetic practice of frequent fastings and other penances. Many see this as proof of his extraordinary piety. That's always how he got people. And I'll say it again, you can't simply say it's a fake or something like this, because nobody goes without eating for a week just to you know, fake people out. You either really believe this stuff or you don't. He was said to have a good voice, um, and so he always sang to Hillam all night long. Hear what I said? He sang to him all night long, and sometimes Spanish love songs. Because No, 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 wait a second. He's a Sephardi, and in the Sephardi culture, it's not my culture, but you go to Seattle and these kind of places, they're into, all, I mean, it sounds funny, they sing these Echasimahs, you know? It's strange to ask you. They sing, it's all oh, my beautiful dove, and this and that and the other, and... Uh, and he interprets it, of course, Kabbalistically, the dove is not a bird, it really refers to Kali Israel, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so he just kept, he's not your typical boring rabbi that walks down the street, dime a dozen, in Yerushalayim, you know. And uh, he gives mystical interpretation, he, he attracts crowds of listeners. At other times, he prays and cries at the graves of Tzadikim, he goes to Hebron, he, deliver, he, he gives out candy to the children of the street, and he gathers a circle of adherents. On the other hand, he's not going to stand out as an outstanding master of Kabbalistic Knowledge in Jerusalem at that time, in the time of Yaakov Hagiz, Yerushalayim is the headquarters of Lurianic Kabbalism. Tzfat disappeared because there was a war between the governor of Tzfat and the governor of Damascus, and the Jewish community in Tzfat was wiped out. So in the time I'm talking about, the Jews are living in Yerushalayim, or they're not living anywhere. Um, and people like Rabbi Yaakov Tzemach and others who are famous, Mukabolim, and Talmidim, Rabbi Chaim Vital, and others, are all in Yerushalayim. But when he gets his manic moods, because eventually it kicks in, even Yerushalayim, they view it as Nebuch mental illness. Though he seems to have been flogged on a number of occasions. But it's strange. They don't... I say, you know, he's not your typical heretic. He's not, he's not apostatizing. He's not joining another religion. He's not doing... He's not, it doesn't say he's going to Mechal Shabbos. He doesn't, you know, he does strange things. And so they don't know what to do with it. Um, but then they know that after a while, these crazy moods leave him. And... Of course, when he, if he's depressed, he's locked in the room, you don't see him. And if he's normal, you see him in there. So you say, you know, he's a very good guy. Nebuchadnezzar, he has once while, every once in a while he has these attacks. That's what we say today. I mean, I could just see it. If, you have a, if they were nice people, and they were nice people, you were shalim, they say, listen, the guy's a Tamil all the rest of it. He has issues, you know. So, you know, we, we try to, you know, if he screamed in the middle of the show, don't say nothing. It's like that. That's, that's how they treated him. At that time, after a year or so, the Turkish governor, as was common, jacks up the taxes very heavily to hurt the Jews. Like doubles and triples the taxes overnight. The Jewish community is desperate. And they send Shabtai Tzvi, this new guy who showed up, back to Egypt to be a fundraiser because we heard that he was a favorite with the rich guy in Egypt, which he was. Refal Yosef. And so he goes and he raises a ton of money from the guy and he sends it back to Yerushalayim and he remains in Egypt. 
By now, we're told, in Egypt, the waves of depression are so debilitating that he forgot about being a Mashiach. Okay? It just got him so much, he basically gave it up. And if the story had ended now, it'd be interesting on a human being level, but wouldn't have a national Jewish significance. But two events in 1665 stimulate or revive his messianic pretensions. His strange marriage and his meeting with Nathan of Gaza. These two events launch an international spasm of Jewish frenzy, but that's something we'll attack next time. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.